get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on gotodobbs.com today. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. his role marrying a lot of Corey of the left-handed Corey Dickerson. I think that the Cardinals, when they're looking at their reserves and they're looking at their DH, which I still believe will be DH by committee, obviously those committee members have changed a little bit. Um, they're looking at a lot of flexibility there. So do I think that, you know, Pujols will get a start every now and then? Probably, but this is not a player that the Cardinals pursued for his defensive abilities at this point. They pursued him for his ability to be a bench bat. Guys, I would like to admit that I was wrong on something. Can I do that up front today? That was Katie Wu joining us yesterday talking about what Albert Pujols' role is going to be with the Cardinals this year. Or did you just BKO it? Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. I told you guys that I don't think Albert Pujols should or will get very many opportunities this year against right-handed pitching. Oh, okay. So you BKO'd it. I would like to make an amendment to that statement. I don't think he will see very many opportunities against hard-throwing righties this season. I saw a stat yesterday from Buster Olney, who tweeted out that Albert Pujols over the last few years has actually been excellent against soft tossing righties. So think in your mind, guys like Kyle Davies or Kyle Hendricks, who have given the Cardinals some issues over the last few years. Those are players that Albert Pujols actually succeeds against. So baseball reference has a statistic that labels pitchers by if they're power pitchers or finesse pitchers. So it's not exactly just velocity versus guys that throw softly, but it's the closest thing that you can find that's easily readily available for you over on the internet on the interwebs. Last year against power pitchers, Albert Pujols was 35% below league average. He was very bad. He cannot catch up to heat anymore. It was the Matt Carpenter issue that we saw last year. Just doesn't have the bat speed. Against finesse pitchers, Albert Pujols was close to 20% above league average. He was a very good hitter. He was basically last year against finesse pitchers, Dylan Carlson, but with more pop. That you can live with for sure. And that was against righties and lefties. So Albert Pujols this year, what you're going to see him do It's not just going to be against lefties. And honestly, it's not even going to be against lefties that throw high heat. Lefties that throw soft, righties that throw soft. You're probably going to see Albert Pujols in the lineup on those days. I was thinking about this more last night when I saw that Buster Olney tweet. And then Alex this morning, the Cardinals manager, Oliver Marmol, 
was on with ESPN Radio. Here's what he had to say about platooning the designated hitter. And now it's not exactly just going to be righties versus lefties. I mean, let's get serious here. I understand the the analytics behind everything, but there, these guys could still hit their own hand in this, right? Like Pujols could still take a righty deep, and Dickerson could take a great at bat against the lefty. So it'll be matchup, game to game. Um, but when I think of the DH spot, both of those guys will be able to to platoon and give us a, a really good at bat. I'm a little confused by that. Just a little confused by that. By what? By like, I thought he what is the purpose of Corey Dickerson then? I'm going to be totally That's honest a great with you, question. Because I don't understand what, like, Albert Pujols was brought in to be the other Corey Dickerson, but now he's better than Corey Dick. Well, he's better than Corey Dickerson. We know that. Are we sure? We're, we're not sure about that, but what are you talking yeah. about? Corey Dickerson's not going into the Hall of Fame. No, I love Corey Dickerson. If you're doing one to show. one right now, they're pretty similar as players. But, like, I thought Albert Pujols was brought in to be... The left-handed pitcher, Corey Dickerson. Yeah. And now he's hitting righties that don't throw hard. So, like, what's the velocity number we're looking at here? I mean, probably below 95 is typically the way that people would categorize this. So basically starters that aren't Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer. Yeah. yeah, like third, fourth, fifth rotation Today, starters. Today's the perfect example of it. And look, you may say, well, it's spring training, they're just getting them reps. Look, I thought the whole plan was for Albert to get reps on the backfield first. They're going against Anibal Sanchez, who throws 89 was his velocity last year. This is probably a lineup that we're seeing today, minus Arnado, because he's out due to uh, a small little injury, but he'll be well, back tomorrow. Not an injury. He, he got, got a mole removed, removed from his... That's not even his umbrella. Oh, sorry. But... <laughs> This is the lineup that you're going to see probably against these soft-throwing righties today. Just bump everybody back one and slot uh, Arnado in the fourth okay, spot. Okay, but let's look at the NL Central. By the way, for what it's worth, the, the lineup today, Carlson's leading off, Goldie, O'Neal, and then you would have Arenado. Poole's hitting fifth, DeYoung hitting sixth, Yachty hitting seventh. How about that, Alex? Bader eighth, and Tommy Edmond ninth. So let's look at the NL Central. How many hard-throwing righties... Are there in the NL Central? I think we could all agree Corbin Burns would be on that list. Brandon yeah, Woodruff would be on that Poles list. Probably isn't starting against a right-handed thrower from Milwaukee. Yeah, good enough. I mean, maybe not even against that bullpen that's a righty as well for the Milwaukee Brewers. But the Cincinnati Reds, I don't think they. I mean, Luis Castillo, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't probably really the think there's that many hard-throwing righties when it comes to probably Stroman. You're probably not throwing so, him out there so against Stroman. Essentially, what yeah. Ali Marmol is saying is he's not going to be going up against ace righties for other teams. Yeah. That changes a lot. And I told you guys I'm better to forget it yesterday. Like, I could see Albert Poole's getting 400 at-bats. That might be a little too exaggerated, but I might say close to 300. Remember my whole thing about how he's only going to have four? I was strong in it. I, I wanted to make sure everybody heard it. I was loud wrong. Do we 700, have not totally out of play. Not totally out of play. I don't think it's going to happen, but it's it's more possible than I let on the Man, other day. Three days yep. changes the tune of he's not getting 700 to it's actually pretty possible. Yeah, I, I wouldn't expect it. I still don't think that's going to be the case. Oh, I would expect it. I, I, I mean, with new information, I, I reserve the right to be able to change my opinion on things and. I've seen new information on this. I didn't realize how much it was just more of a velocity thing as opposed to a hand in this thing. And that's on me. I should have looked more into it. But when I saw these stats from uh, Buster Olney, it made me look into it a little bit further. And it's true. And it's not just last year. The hand in this thing was exclusively a last year thing. 
prior to that, he was actually better against righties than he was lefties, which is interesting. Um, but the, the, the velocity has been an issue for Albert for about five years now. Meanwhile, he's still been crushing in all of this stretch. Those guys that are more soft tossing, the guys that don't strike out a bunch of batters. And that's the other thing is like, it, it's really just guys that don't have strikeout stuff. Those are the people that you're going to be. Basically, if the Cardinals were facing Albert Pujols, he would mash against all of their guys because the Cardinals yeah, don't rely true. on strikeout stuff. They're guys that are throwing 90 to 94 and they're going to pitch to contact. And last year, it's no surprise when they came to St. Louis, he started against Jay Happ. That's exactly the style of pitcher that Albert Poole should be pit- should be hitting against and this I year. And I think when you're talking NL Central, you're going to see a majority of those guys. So mm-hmm. I would imagine that a lot of NL Central games, you're going to see a lot of Albert Pujols. And that's why I've changed my tune because I was with you. I didn't I wasn't as certain that 700 wouldn't happen, but I was pretty sure that he wasn't going to be hitting 21 home runs this season. I'm starting to change my tune with that because I think every opportunity they can play Albert Pujols, they will play Albert Pujols. With the exception of all of the aces for teams, I think when you get into that 3-4-5 rotation, Albert Pujols is going to be starting those games as a DH, and as soon as the bullpen starts coming into games, that's when Pujols comes out as the DH and they put somebody else in. Yeah, I think we'll see that a lot, but I would still put 700 kind of in the back of the mind for now because I don't know if he'll still get to 21 home runs. I agree. He's probably going to get more at-bats than what we originally thought, but he only had uh, four home runs against right-handed pitching last year, and he had more at plate appearance against right-handed pitching than he did left-handed pitching, and we've talked about it. He just had an unreal year against left-handed pitching last year. Can he still get there? Absolutely. It's still going to be very difficult, even if he gets to the 400 at-bats that we're potentially talking about here. And I think you will see him a lot against the NL Central. I can't think of a lot of guys that throw that hard, but granted, there are a lot of garbage teams in the National League Central outside of Milwaukee and St. Louis. So it'll be interesting to see. It does put in question to me of what what you brought Corey Dickerson in for when he could have just used a large new bar there. Uh, maybe we're and Juan under Yepes, honestly that good point too. Maybe, maybe just hearing this news, we're still undervaluing what Dickerson's going to get in terms of plate appearance. I still think he's going to get a lot against right-handed pitching. So I thought that too. And then I heard another quote from oh, Oliver Marmol. Were you hiding this one before earlier you saw today on ESPN radio? Here's more on how they're going to utilize the designated hitter spot this year. But when I look at 162 games, we're going to have the ability to use Nolan and get him off his feet, uh, but still have his bat in the lineup. We're going to be able to do the same thing with Goldie over at first and let Albert play first and, and let Goldie get off his feet for a game or two and, and also uh, keep his bat in the lineup. We'll be able to rotate some guys in and out where um, it's a little bit of rest, um, but we still benefit from seeing uh, four bats from him. Hold on. Wasn't I told that this was going to be defense first team? So, guys, I hate the DH. I, <laughs> Corey Dickerson hates the DH because Corey Dickerson's like, why am I even here, guys? Can I sell you on it? Well, I think what? what they're doing is right, but I do. Th- it becomes really difficult to see how Corey Dickerson has a regular role on the team when you go about it this way. So their research tells them they get diminishing returns when a guy starts seven straight days. So it's the correct thing to do. To It's a marathon, not a sprint, right? That's the old cliche. And there's some truth to that. And the Cardinals were trying to make it a sprint in recent years under both Mike Schilt and Mike Matheny. When guys wanted to start, he was throwing them out there. And if that meant starting 162, by God, we're starting them 162. You're not going to see that, it sounds like, under Oliver Marmol. That's probably the right approach to this in terms of just sports science, looking at the data. Guys get worse when they start more frequently. So you get Nolan Arenado 
10 days off over the course of the season. And instead of not being able to utilize him in the lineup on those days, you put him at DH on those days. Same thing for Paul Goldschmidt. Maybe it's 10 days this year where he's your DH. Same thing probably will be true, to be honest, for Paul DeYoung. If he's hitting well this year, there's probably going to be 10 days throughout the season where he's going to be getting spots in your DH. I would imagine the same will be true at some point in time this year for Tyler O'Neill. He'll probably get some time as your designated hitter. Well, I just gave you, if it's 10 10 days for each of those four guys, that's 40 starts at designated hitter. We think Albert's probably getting what? 80 to 100 starts as your designated hitter this year? We're up to, at, at a minimum, 120 starts at your DH role without including any for Lars Newtbar or Corey Dickerson. Injuries are going to play into this too, though. Sure. And injuries are going to force the hand of the Cardinals because, I, look, I, I you never want to think about injuries or talk about injuries, but it's hard By to way, imagine. I didn't incorporate Nolan Gorman into that mix either. Well, he's down in the minors, so. To start. And probably to finish, too. Okay. Albert Pujols is here. But, I mean, you would imagine Albert Pujols isn't going to make it the long stretch of the season. I, I he mean, might as a DH. He could. I mean, he did. He stayed healthy for a good chunk when he did that. Yeah, I guess that's Angels. true. Uh, yeah. I mean, injuries are going to play into this one at some point to where you're going to see other guys as well. But, I mean, it's hard to really look at Corey Dickerson now, and we already got a text saying Dickerson's a high on base guy, left-handed, and plays good defense, adds some veteran stability, eh, a by-low bargain eh. given his track record. Absolutely, but, I mean, you paid $5 million for a guy who might see 40 at-bats for you or 40 games as a DH. I mean, I guess that's worth it, but it's hard to imagine that you can get traction going when you're not seeing that many pitches. And I liked it. I, I liked the signing. I still like the I, signing I of Corey Dickerson. I think it's a smart move. I think it gives you more depth than what you had previously. And you're right, Alex. At some point this year, you're going to run into injuries. And one of those outfielders is going to hurt. He's going to go on the 10-day IL. You're probably going to start Lars Newtbar whenever that happens. And now you've still got a fourth outfielder in your system that you feel good about. As opposed to last year when one of those guys went down, we saw Scotty Hurst and Justin Williams and Austin Dean and all of these guys that, let's be honest, none of us wanted to see playing in the outfield. I didn't mind Dean. So they're in yes, a much did. better situation this year Dean to deal with Dean. those injuries than they were a year ago. They have organizational depth on the position player side, so that way June doesn't happen again. But there are some questions that arise as a result of this. And this is where when I think it was you asked the question, Tanner, maybe it was you, Alex. I don't remember. One of you asked, does this make it easier or harder on Oliver Marmol and his job this year managing the team. The more we dive into this, the more I realize, man, he does not have an easy job this year. They are putting a lot on Marmol, both in terms of the communication with his players and also just making sure he's actually following all of the plans that are putting into motion right now. If it works, the ceiling on this is way higher than what they've been doing over the last five years. It is way higher because sports science wise, analytically, like I know people, they're buzzwords that when I say them, people get very upset about it, but it should help them peak at the right time at the end of the year. If it doesn't work, though, if it goes awry, who baby, the floor is a lot lower. So it's it's really interesting to see me. For for me to see what they're trying to accomplish with this DH role. And I just went and just went through the schedule real quick to see how many times they play at least all seven days in a week. And there could be more games attached to that that I didn't count in the 
back end of a week that continued over nine times this year or nine weeks in the season they're going to have where they don't have a day off in the week so they're going to be utilizing what you what we're talking about here but I, I do find it interesting I do think the original plan was Dickerson was going to get mostly at bats against right-handed <laughs> pitching and and I hate to say this but I do think the Cardinals might be falling into some of the nostalgia with Albert Pujols getting him potentially more at bats and the more that they talk about this because let I don't see a reason. I get that you need to give Goldie a day off, but there should be someone else to play first base besides Albert. Albert's not very good defensively anymore, and I hate saying but that. But if Yupez doesn't make the team, who? And, I know, and that's from, thing. for what it's worth, apparently, is not very good defensively either, so I, I don't know oh. that there's a drop-off from Albert to, to Yepes. Well, what did you sell us on with this guy, man? <laughs> Why did you tell Kylie us that Kylie McDaniel he was... said he could hit 25 home runs. Kylie McDaniel also said Trevor Story was going to sign for like $20 million. Well, Didn't he? Six five seven eight zero zero. Comfort service tax line from the three one four. BK, I thought you said yesterday Albert's going to get one hundred and fifty at bats this year. You just said you're expecting him to get eighty or ninety starts. That's two hundred and forty to two hundred and fifty at bats. Yes, I was wrong. That was good math. I was wrong. I, I thought that they would go one way, and I I saw this new information, and I realized I I discounted what exactly it is that was going to lead to Albert's role this year. So it's going to be interesting, man. They have a lot that they're going to have to fluctuate between with the DH role, everyday opportunities in the field. This team's a lot deeper than it was a year ago, which is a good thing. Obviously, no doubt about it. Everybody agrees. It does present some questions, though, that are going to be fun to filter through. And we've said all along, we think that this lineup's going to be less static. Well, Get, get ready for some dynamic lineups over the course Ooh. of the season. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. One of the guys that's going to be in that lineup is going to be our top 20 most important player at number nine as we continue our countdown today. But coming up next, Alex, what is the ideal playoff matchup for the Blues? I think there is only one. Arizona we'll tell Coyotes. you who it is coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You know, the level that the St. Louis Blues and, and Minnesota Wild can get to, I think they're just as good. And, and quite frankly, I think that in some ways they're both better built than the Colorado Avalanche. So um, I, I think those are these are both two teams that I kind of have marked down that you know, don't sleep on the Blues. Don't sleep on the Wild. I think both teams can make a lot of noise come postseason, so this will be a great matchup. That was Mike Rupp. To be fair to him, that was about two months ago, prior to all of the issues that the Blues have run into over the last couple of months. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. As of today, Alex, as we look at what the playoff matchups would be, if you're going by the actual points, the Blues would be matched up against Calgary. If you go by the points percentage, they would right now be matched up against the Wild in the 2-3 matchup for the Central Division. The way that the current playoff seeding would work is if you're the 2 or the 3 seed for the Blues, probably uh, the 3 right now, you'd be matched up against the Wild in the playoffs. If you end up getting the top wild card spot, you would be going up against Calgary in Calgary in the first round. And if you were the second wild card in the Western Conference, you would be going up against Colorado. And as we know, that's a waste waste of eight days for whoever goes into that uh, round against Colorado. It's a lot, Daryl. Although, to be fair, Nathan McKinnon being out might change things a little bit. And I that. was watching that Calgary game last night. Devon Taves left the game early, and I believe one of their other players left the game early as well. That changes things Could for be sure. injured at the worst time. But if we assume that they're going to be healthy by the time the playoffs come around, uh, not going to be an easy matchup for whoever ends up having to play against Colorado. Alex, what's the ideal scenario in your mind for the Blues? What, what does that look like the rest of the season? I, I think there's an obvious one 
for me in an ideal first round matchup because look, I, I think to to call this a successful season, you obviously want to have a Stanley Cup at the end of it. But success in financing terms, I think you want to make it to at least the second round, especially for a team that continues to spend to the cap. And to get to the second round, I think it's obvious. I think you want to play the Minnesota Wild in the first round. If you go back and look at what the Blues have done against Minnesota in the last three years, and I understand this is a different team now than what they've been in the last three years, but you always go off of a, like when you're, when you beat a team as much as the Blues have beaten up on the Minnesota Wild, you're confident going into it. And I think that that says something for a Blues team going into the playoffs. They've only lost twice in the last three seasons of the Minnesota Wild. And mind you, that was the bubble, including the COVID season where they played them seven consecutive times. They're 10-1-1 in 12 games against the Minnesota Wild over the last few seasons. And I just think when you look at the Minnesota Wild, yes, they match up probably better on paper because of the upgrades that they did in the trade deadline and considering that they have some size and some skill. But I would take the Blues in a seven-game series against the Minnesota Wild because Minnesota hasn't been there. They haven't done that. The Blues have. And on top of it, I think the Blues, when they get into the playoffs, they have a little bit more physical brand that can match with the Minnesota Wild. So the fact that you've beaten up on them a lot over the last few seasons and the fact that you're, you'd be a confident group going into it, I think that's a a favorable matchup for the Blues if they could get that in the first round. Yeah, I agree that the Wild's probably your best matchup in the first round of the three that are the likely outcomes between Calgary and, and uh, Colorado. Now, granted, if Colorado's injured, then I might change my answer because I still view the Blues as the fourth-best team in the Western Conference. I do put Minnesota ahead of them, and I get what you're saying in recent past, but they're playing well, and I love the acquisition of Marc-Andre Fleury to kind of shore up their goaltending. I mean, they've won seven in a row. I mean, they're playing great hockey <laughs> while the Blues are just kind of stumbling along and trying to figure out what's go- going on with them, trying to f- get right the ship. Heading into the playoffs, look, I agree. Minnesota's the best matchup. Gives the Blues their best chance to get to the second round. Right now, though, I look at this Blues team, I don't even think they could beat Minnesota. I think right now you're looking at a team that's potentially a first-round exit team. And Minnesota's their best matchup, but I still don't know if they can beat them. I think right now, if you're looking at it, you have three realistic options for the way that the Blues, or who the Blues could uh, go up against in the first round. It's Colorado, it's Calgary, it's Minnesota. I don't think anybody that's reasonable would take Calgary or Colorado as your first round matchup, as opposed to Minnesota Tanner, even if I agree with your assessment that the blues, it would be a struggle for them to be able to beat Minnesota right now. And I think most people would probably agree with the way that they're currently playing. That's the case. That's the team. Like so clearly that is the team that you want to play in the first round and the way you do it is by finishing either second or third in the central division second if you're able to overtake Minnesota or third if you're not able to get there but you've got to be able to stay in front of Nashville the rest of the season that's got to be the goal. The goal for this team is incredibly clear the rest of the way. You have to finish second or third because going up to Calgary in the first round, that's going to be a a nightmare scenario for the Blues. That team plays the exact style that I don't want to see the Blues go up against in the first round. Colorado is a juggernaut, man, and I understand they're hurt right now. And obviously, if that ends up remaining the case, sure, things could change. They don't have a great goalie situation. You could beat them in the first round if they're without Nathan McKinnon and Devon Taves and they've got some other stuff that they're dealing with okay cool but minnesota is so obviously in my mind the matchup that you want in the first round but any of these alex let's say they do finish third minnesota stays in front of them and the blues finish third in this division whether they finish there or the first wild card or the second wild card wherever they finish from that range they gotta be better on the road 
They have to find a way to start having more success on the road. Otherwise, none of it's going to matter because they're going to go on the road for four out of seven, and they're not going to be able to get out of that first. Yeah, round. and look at all the opponents that they would have to take at the on, on the road. Like Colorado has the best home record in the Western Conference. They're twenty six four and three on home ice. Minnesota is significantly better at home than they are away. They're twenty four seven and one when they play on home ice. And Calgary the same twenty one seven and six. The Blues are very good at home twenty one nine and four. But you got to be better on the road. You have to be able to win those playoff games. And as of late, recency bias tells me that this team is struggling on the road. I know they beat the Washington Capitals. I know they beat the Chicago Blackhawks. But you got to be more consistent on the road, which is why I'm really focusing in on this upcoming road trip, because not only are you playing playoff style, playoff caliber games, but you're doing it with 17 games to go in the regular season. And you're doing these three on a very difficult road trip through Western Canada to take on Vancouver, Edmonton and Calgary. So this is going to be the the prove it road trip for the Blues in terms of confidence level moving into the playoffs. I looked up earlier today what the average of the Stanley Cup winners was over the last five full seasons in terms of the points that they were able to get on the road over the course of that season. So the 2020 Lightning, 2019 Blues, 2018 Capitals, 2017 and 16 Penguins, those five teams, what do they do on the road? They basically achieved an average of 47 points. All of them were somewhere between 45 and 50 points on the road in their respective seasons. The Blues are currently at 35. They have another 10 road games remaining. So at most, they could get up to 55 points possible this year on the road. If you're able to win a little more than half of them, go like 6-2-2, 6-4, and something like that on the road this year, feel pretty good. You're right in line with what the recent cup contenders, the recent cup winners were able to do on the road. But you got to do that while playing against Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Boston, uh, Nashville, San Jose, Anaheim, Colorado. Those are most of their remaining road games. It ain't going to be easy. So it starts tonight. Blues back on the road against Vancouver. It's a late one. Alex has your pregame coverage starting at 8 o'clock right here in your home for the Blues. For 101 ESPN. We will have the You'll puck drop for you. at that time. You'll be up by puck drop. Starting at 9 o'clock. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to be doing some questions and answers. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. Very excited to have Mizzou basketball coach Dennis Gates joining the show coming up at 12 o'clock. Been efforting him for a minute. Very excited to be able to talk to him for the first time coming up at noon we continue our countdown of the 20 most important players though coming up next including a guy who might see a bit of a role change in 2022 we'll tell you who that is coming up next here on 101 espn we're right back to the bk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn and now the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2022 season on BK and Ferrario. Number nine, Tommy Edmond. The 2-1 pitch lifted in the air. Deep left field at the track at the wall. Gone! Lead-off homer, Tommy Edmond. one nothing Cardinals. That's right. At number nine on our list of the 20 most important players is Tommy Edmond with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We were all right around the same spot with Tommy Edmond. Alex had him at number eight. Tanner had him at number 10. I had him at number eight as well. I Jeez, agree with Tanner. you, Alex, on what where we've got hell? Tommy Edmond going into the season. <laughs> Tommy Edmond's projections right now, if you're going over to Fangraphs and you're looking at their Zips projections, 
They really like what he could potentially be this year. They've got him as a 275 batting average guy, 325 on base percentage. They believe that he's going to be one of the most valuable second basemen in the sport going into this year. They've got him for 13 home runs, scoring about 90 runs and stealing 30 bags this year. That would be one heck of a season for Tommy Edmond. Alex, why did you have him at number eight on your list of the 20 most important players? Because going into the I year? just, I think you're going to see a breakout season for Tommy Edmond. I know that's crazy to say after his last season where he gets a gold glove and I think he sees a career high in at bats, but I mean, the confidence has to be oozing right now for Tommy Edmond. And I just, I think he's going to solidify himself as a second baseman for this Cardinals team, maybe even get some opportunities at shortstop. I think the defense is going to showcase why he won the gold glove. But I think on top of that, you're going to see the speed and offense from Tommy Edmond. I think you could see a guy who could be hitting in your top two for the remainder of the season, whether it's leadoff or uh, the two hole. I think Tommy Edmond is going to be very impactful for this team's offense in terms of getting on base, having that speed to move the, the runner over and to score some runs for this Cardinals team. I see Tommy Edmond being like a David Eckstein for this Cardinals team this year. That's an interesting comp. I, I had him down at 10 and honestly, he barely cracked my top 10 because I just view him as a guy that's going to at some point, whether it be lose the job or just end up the job being handed over to Nolan Gorman. I think Nolan Gorman's going to be the starting second baseman on the Cardinals by I'd say the all-star break. And then it comes down to Edmund becoming just a versatility guy for the Cardinals could play shortstop, could play in the outfield if need be. I, I don't view him as a leadoff guy. I think he is going to be a guy that's going to be hitting lower in the order. I just don't see his on base percentage going up. And I hate to say that because if he can get the on base percentage to go up, he has a chance to be a guy that could be viewed as a uh, top 10 second baseman in major league baseball. I, I just don't know if he's going to do that. He's going to provide great gold glove defense for this team. I, I just wonder what, what's going to be his role if he ends up losing the job to Nolan Gorman. And that's why I had him a little bit lower than you guys. I had him at 10. And again, I almost moved him outside of my top 10 because I just don't know what he's going to provide after you get to about that time frame where it's time for Nolan Gorman to come up to the big league club. I think he just needs a little more power. That, that's the last thing that I need from him because I don't know that the on-base percentage is ever going to get super high for him. Like, I just, I think this is who he is as a player. At this point in his career, he's what, almost 30 years old, 29 years old, something like that. Um, Tommy Edmond is probably not good. He's 26 years old. I was a little off on that. Um, I don't think he's going to change. He's in the year four of his major league career at this point. I think he is essentially Whit Merrifield. And Whit Merrifield's a really good player. I tried to I tried to trade for, try to trade for, for him, him every year times, uh, for the Cardinals. What I have come to realize is they already had him on the roster, and they've got him at a cheaper price and at a younger age. Whit Merrifield in his career is about a 290 hitter with a 335 on base percentage. Pretty good. His slugging percentage, though, is about 25 points higher than what Tommy Edmonds is so far. Tommy Edmonds ha- has been a league average hitter. If you're looking at Whit Merrifield, he's been about 5 to 10% above league average for the majority of his career. Get a little more power, and you've got a guy that I'm with you, Tanner, can be a legit top 10 to 15 uh, second baseman in the sport right now. The question is, what's his role going to be? Because we've all talked about what the Cardinals are going to do batting leadoff going into the year, and then they put out this lineup today, and they've been talking about the lineup flexibility and how they're going to switch things up and all these different things, and you haven't really seen it so far in spring training. Until today. And today they have Dylan Carlson batting leadoff. They've got Paul Goldschmidt two, Nolan Arenado, or excuse me, Tyler O'Neill three. They're gonna have Nolan Arenado batting fourth whenever he's back in the lineup. Looks like you're probably gonna have Pools five. 
Maybe Dickerson, maybe Newt Bar, depending on who the, who's in the lineup I'd that say day. Pools, Dickerson are going to alternate that five spot. DeYoung, six. Molina, seven. Bader, eight. Tommy Edmond would be batting ninth today if Nolan Arenado was out there. How do you guys feel about that? I'm okay with that. I, I, it's the same role that I thought you could put Harrison Bader in and have that second leadoff guy. I, I mean, look, I, I'm not looking for more power from Tommy Edmond. I'm just looking for a guy who can get on base. And, I mean, last year... I mean, it was almost identical to what David Eckstein had the year that the Cardinals won the World Series, and that was Eckstein as a leadoff hitter. So obviously you want him to be a leadoff spot, but I think Tommy Edmond in the ninth nine hole actually could be beneficial for this team because if you have him getting on base at a high clip and then Dylan Carlson's power coming up and you're already dealing with the top of that order, I mean, that's a that's a, uh, that's a drowning feeling for a pitcher when you look at that lineup, especially when you go one through six and then when you flip, you go through seven and eight and seven and eight can be dangerous. We all know that. But then you get back to nine and you got to do that all over again. That's going to be tough. Man, imagine going Bader, Edmund, Carlson, Goldie, O'Neill in, in one inning. Like if you're starting out, God, your that's inning, a lot of speed. A single turns into a all triple. Right, we got oh. the eighth place hitter. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. damn. <laughs> Harrison Bader, who's been a above league average hitter each of the last two seasons. Tommy Edmund, who led the National League in stolen bases last year and got to second base on average more than any other leadoff hitter in the National League last year because of those steals and doubles that he's hit. Man, that is terrifying as an opposing pitcher. If you're going into an let's say it's the, the fifth inning. And it's Bader, Edmund, Carlson, Goldie, O'Neill, Arenado. Good luck. Here's what I don't I, want to be facing against that. Here's what I don't want the Cardinals to do. I don't want the Cardinals to bury Tommy Edmund in the middle of guys who, who don't have speed, who clog his speed ability. That's why I like that Bader, Edmund at the bottom. Exactly. Like, don't don't flip that around and have, like, Edmund in the middle of Yachty and DeYoung or something like that. Like, uh, keep it as is because... I want that speed to continue to roll, especially with Skip Schumacher there. I want the ability to just continue to steal bags. The threat of stealing bags is going to be a benefit for guys like Tyler O'Neill, Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, because as soon as that pitcher takes his distraction off of the guy that he's facing, I think that can be a dangerous moment for the Cardinals. And I really like the idea of the quote-unquote second leadoff guy batting ninth. Honestly, their second leadoff guy is kind of that 8-9 spot with Bader Edmond if that's going to be the lineup. That's yeah, three I, leadoff guys I, for I, I like that because I truly like you. you used to be your four best hitters were like three, four, five, six. And then it became two, three, four, five, six. I actually like it one, two, three, four. I like your four best hitters actually at the top of the order. That's why I'm so big on save the text text line Goldie leading off because he's got the high on base percentage. I like your four best hitters hitting that four spot. And if you've got speed guys that are at the bottom, like Harrison Bader has a decent on base percentage. I think he's going to have a good year. He can get on base. He can steal second base. If Edmund doesn't get on, boom, you've got your four best hitters ready with a guy in scoring position. Same with Tommy Edmund. Tommy Edmund, his double ability and then his ability to steal second base if necessary. You've got a nine-hole hitter that's on second base, and all of a sudden you've got your four best hitters coming up to the plate. That's why I love the idea. True or false, Albert Pujols' presence is what got them to this place. Because I think Dylan Carlson was going to be their five-hole hitter if Albert Pujols wasn't here. But I think they trust Albert being in that spot. That's where they would always, you remember the last couple of years, Yachty would always find his way. It was like it was like gravity. He would eventually get to the middle of the order. He would be fifth because they trusted him in those runners in scoring position spots where you've got Goldie and O'Neal and Arenado on base, One of at least one of those three. Yachty's always going to come through in those spots, or at least it felt that way. I think they're going to feel the same way about Albert going into this year, where he's the one now that you trust in those clutch situations. Last year, he was outstanding in high leverage spots. You can look at the statistics. They bear it out. 
I think Dylan Carlson was going to have that role. They wanted him to be in that spot, but they would prefer to have him batting leadoff. They just didn't trust somebody else to be in that five hole. So they were like, okay, we're fine with having Dylan Carlson in the five hole. We think Tommy Edmond can be okay or at least good enough batting leadoff. But now that you've got Albert, that's what allowed you to make this move to get Carlson batting leadoff. Do you think there's some truth to that? I think so. I agree with that as well. And, and I think that because my whole, my again, my whole process is the four best hitters in your lineup are one, two, three, four. So I already had Carlson hitting two and Goldie leadoff in my mind for the lineup. And I always said, who's that five hole hitter? Who's that fifth guy that you trust? I looked at that lineup when they signed Dickerson. I said, okay, you could put Dickerson there, but against lefties, would it be Paul DeYoung? Not really. That's why you'd see the Cardinals shift Dylan Carlson down there. Now that you've got that interchangeable, and I think that's what it's going to be is Pujols and Dickerson will be that five spot. I think you can feel comfortable putting Carlson into the leadoff spot. From the 618, no chance Goldie beats Bats leadoff. My gosh. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're going to be joined by Dennis Gates, the new Mizzou men's basketball coach. I've got a lot of questions about his current recruiting. I feel like Mizzou right now is connected to every transfer in the country. So we'll ask Dennis Gates what that's been like for him, where he's at on building out his staff, what his plan is for the team this offseason. Dennis Gates joining the show coming up at the top of the hour. Questions and answers 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario, that's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Let's get to some questions and answers coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. We're going to be joined by Dennis Gates, the new Mizzou men's basketball coach. Uh, let's start with this one from the 314. Guys, I see a lot of projections that the Chiefs are now going to go receiver early in the draft. What does that sound like to you? Who would you like them to go out there and get? Alex, I know you've been saying all along, you want them to trade up to get Jordan Davis, not a wide receiver. I've never said that. I said, I, I, you know, I've been a free agent in terms of an NFL fan for a really long time. And I have dedicated my fanship to the team that drafts Jordan Davis this year. Because I love that man, that man, that man that can take on an entire offensive line with his wingspan and size and strength. Uh, That is who I put my fanship in Jordan Davis's team that gets drafted. I've loved so much that you were this all in on Jordan. Davis. I I freaking love that man watching him run that 40. Oh my God. I was, I was hooked. He's 340 pounds and he ran a four, eight. I was, I've never seen anything like it ever. His wingspan Goes from left tackle to right tackle in the NFL. He's better than Aaron Donald. Book it. Are there any other players in this draft that you're like, I just, I I love them and I can't wait to see where they end up. Because Jamison Williams is one of those guys for me. The Alabama receiver that's from St. Louis. I I cannot wait to see where he ends up. I think he's going to be awesome. If he, like if he were to go to Green Bay, for example, God, that would be a hell of a lot of fun to see him with Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, Jordan Davis is fine. I love that man. I want, I'm interested to know where Desmond Ritter goes. I, I loved him in college, so I, I'm very curious. That's the Liberty. Oh no, Malik. No, I like him too, man. Yeah. I want him Ritter's to go to from Pittsburgh. Cincinnati. I kind of want him to go to Carolina. Ooh, ooh, ew. Well, you want the, him to go be broken? No, he won't get broken. They'll fire Matt Rule sooner or later. 
I think the, the most interesting position in this year's draft is the receivers because there are so many good ones and there are some really good teams with high level quarterbacks that are now looking for wide receivers like the Chiefs moving on from Tyreek Hill and the Packers moving on from Devontae Adams. It, it opens up a spot where you're going to have a rookie receiver in those situations that's going to come in and immediately. Is that why those impactful. teams were so willing to move past those guys? Maybe because I, of these this the talent level of these receivers. I think it's just a, a money thing, too, man. If you're going to pay twenty five million dollars to those receivers and having a quarterback that's making forty five per get year, a cost controlled wide receiver who could yeah. get to that level. If I can get 80 percent of the production and nobody's going to be Devontae Adams, nobody's going to be Tyreek Hill. You cannot replace those guys one for one. But if I can get 70 to 80% of that production for 20% of the cost, I mean, it, it, I, I see how you get there. I wouldn't do it. I would just keep the all, all-time all great talent. I would prefer to do that. But I understand how you could end up getting there. Uh, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers from the 573. Guys, take it or leave it. Different show, but we'll do it nonetheless. Whoa. By June 1st, will Nolan Gorman or Tommy Edmond be the starter at second base? I'm I'm gonna say it's Tommy Edman. Uh, I think I, I think that after this spring training, they saw Nolan Gorman and thought, okay, he needs a little bit more seasoning in Memphis. And on top of it, they're giving the long leash to Paul DeYoung. So I, I think Paul DeYoung's first opportunity at the major league level is going to be a bench bat or filling in a spot if somebody's injured. But by June first, I think Tommy Edman will be your starting second baseman. June first. So that's what, like a month into the year? March, two. April. Oh yeah, two. Okay, boy. Didn't do the calendar song in my head. Uh, I'm I'm gonna say Gorman might be the starting second baseman by then, and it's not because I'm low on Tommy Edmond. I just think they see a higher ceiling in Nolan Gorman, and I think he's gonna blitz Triple A. I mean, I think he's gonna come out of the gates and just tear up Triple A pitching. I mean, he was doing that at the end of last season. I expect him to continue doing that. I think Tommy Edmond maybe he shifts over to short because DeYoung and Sosa are struggling. Or he just becomes a utility guy that takes on that like Ben Zobris role that we talked about. When uh, let's say it's Nolan Arnado needs a day on his feet, then they end up going to Tommy Edmond at third base. I think it's still going to be Tommy Edmond. Mm-hmm. I think he's going to be their starting second baseman this year, and they'll find ways to get Nolan Gorman into the lineup. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. In 15 minutes or so, we'll dive into some of the things that have taken place so far in spring training. I say spring training stats in general don't matter. Do these specific spring training stats concern you at all? Something or nothing coming up in 15 minutes. Dennis Gates, the new men's basketball coach at the University of Missouri. M-I-Z-Z-O-U. Talk to him next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie, and I've been looking forward to this for quite some time now. The new Mizzou men's basketball coach, Dennis Gates, is joining us here via the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Alex, he won the Horizon League each of the last two years. He's a two-time Horizon League coach of the year. I listened to a couple of podcasts with this gentleman. He's a very impressive man, and now he is the head coach at my, my University of Missouri Tigers. Dennis Gates joining us now. Dennis, we appreciate the time, my friend. How are you doing today? Um, great. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be on the line with you guys and uh, to all our fans out there listening. I'm excited to 
uh, be able to uh, contact them via you guys. Well, we're excited to have you on. I, I wanted to start out with just what the last week or two has been like for you. I have to imagine it's been a whirlwind. I feel like every day I wake up, check Twitter, and there's at least five or ten new transfers <laughs> that Mizzou's been connected to. Uh, what's it been like since the day that you took the job? Can you take us through what the, this last week or two has been like? Well, first of all, I want to thank President Choi, uh, as well as uh, our athletic director, Desiree Reed Francois, for believing in me. And obviously for all of our fans out there for wrapping me with their arms and uh, supporting, uh, obviously, my, my tenure. I'm excited, man. It's been a whirlwind. I've been hitting the ground running uh, from day one. Uh, the most important thing is re-recruiting the guys on our roster. And then as you uh, read Twitter and, and other uh, avenues of information, uh, you can see we're out there working the transfer portal and other high school recruits as well as the junior college level. Dennis, what's the, uh, what's the excitement and anticipation level for, for you now transitioning into the SEC uh, with your coaching career? Well, I've been fortunate enough, and that's a great question, to play um, – at Cal Berkeley, and that was the number one conference at the time. Arizona won the national championship. Uh, I was able to coach in the ACC, uh, and that was the number one conference in basketball during my time at Florida State. Now the, ter- the tides have turned. The SEC is the premier sport for men's basketball, and I'm excited to compete in it, but also I'm, I'm prepared, and my past have prepared me for this day, and I, I just appreciate the opportunity and the belief. And, you know, for me, I'm excited to get the ball rolling. Well, Dennis, so as we know, it, it's all about the players, right? You were one of those guys in the past, and now it's your job to go out there and get those guys. What is this time like for you as you're recruiting these players? I, I'm curious, especially with the transfers, how much does NIL play into some of these th- th- this recruiting that you're doing right now? How much different is it to get these guys as opposed to going the high school route? Well, I just think our game of basketball and all of college athletics has taken a change for the good. Uh, it gives the freedom to these student-athletes to pursue their dreams, aspirations, and their goals. And by way of uh, the transfer portal, it allows them to reinvigorate their, their career and, and, and sort of reset it if it didn't get off to the right start. But also for guys trying to look to go up a level who are under-evaluated, it gives them an opportunity to live out their dreams and play at a higher level. Uh, the SEC is a platform for all these young kids to play in. Uh, I'm excited to recruit them. I'm excited to be a part of it. Uh, and it's just the way of the way of way of our our profession at this moment. And it's not going anywhere. We have to embrace it. Uh, and I'm excited to embrace it. Dennis, the the journey for a coach through different universities is so fascinating to me. And I mean, you've had journeys through a lot of different universities as an assistant, and then of course as a head coach, and now bringing it to Mizzou. What's the most important thing that you've taken away throughout that journey of learning how to recruit players? Well, I've learned from one of the uh, best recruiters in college basketball, and that's Leonard Hamilton. Uh, coach Hamilton was the uh, first black assistant associate head coach in the SEC during his time at Kentucky. And obviously he did a great job at Oklahoma State, Miami, and then obviously um, at Florida State. So I've, I've been fortunate enough to have a front row seat at, at how we do things in terms of the recruiting. But it's all about relationships with the players, their family, friends, and loved ones, uh, but also selling our institution. Mizzou is a great institution, a great city. We're the, uh, you know, only power five institution in the state. And I'm excited about the partnership and the alignment that exists 
uh, between our board of curators, our president, our athletic director, and our entire uh, athletic department. Dennis Gates is Mizzou's new men's basketball coach. He's joining us here on BK and Ferrario. Uh, Dennis, Mizzou hasn't been a big player in the JUCO ranks over the last few years. It's been a minute since they've heavily recruited junior colleges. Uh, You have a strong history with JUCO players, both down in Florida and also in your past up at Cleveland State as well. How much different is it recruiting the JUCO ranks compared to high school players? And what is it about those players that you think has allowed you to be so effective in finding them? Well, I'm I'm a great evaluator of talent. And whether it's JUCO high school, prep school, uh, no matter if it's international, I've been able to cut my teeth in those areas uh, successfully during my tenure as as an assistant, but as well as a head coach. I'm excited because that area where you look at past rosters at Mizzou, you have one or two JUCO individuals who may have gotten under-recruited who were able to help our institution, our program, be successful, win championships, cut down nets, hold up trophies, and and raise some banners. So in years past, it's been part of our DNA. And I'm excited to not just focus on junior college kids, but focus on the right individuals that's going to allow us to restore and rebuild our basketball tradition that North Stewart really, really uh, was the trailblazer in, in establishing. So I'm excited about that. Dennis, what do you look for in a point guard? Well, I look for uh, in all players a, a, a high basketball IQ, the ability to dribble, pass, and shoot. Uh, you have to come away with two of those uh, premier uh, intangibles but also someone that embodies our core values, our core values of friendship, love, accountability, trust, discipline, unselfishness, enthusiasm, and toughness. In some way, shape, or form, those guys have to exhibit those core values in their lives, but it also has to be a habit that's ingrained in their spirit Uh, because ultimately to get to where we have to go, we have to be able to stretch the carrying capacity of these young people and pour more into them by way of getting out more in return uh and that's where player development and 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 personal development happens uh, dennis i'm sure it's just one of the many things on your checklist right now before the uh the, the new season gets underway although i'm sure it's already getting underway for you what's the importance that you put on on, on finding the correct members of a staff for you to round out this upcoming season well first first and foremost um you know we've been and i've been fielding so many calls you will be shocked at those that are interested in joining the staff, right? Uh, guys that I didn't know would be interested. So I'm, I'm betting that, but more importantly, I have to be on campus and, and see what the institution and the environment, what personalities will, will fit. Because ultimately, uh, it is a, a task that we're asked to do, and I'm excited about that task. I'm rolling my sleeves up. All hands will be on deck. I have to make sure the right people are here on that staff. And we're going to obviously lock arms with the right people. And I'm I'm excited about it, man. And and they have to be teachers. They have to be good recruiters. They have to be great people. Uh, And that's most importantly, and and future head coaches. Dennis, last year there were only four teams in America that had a lower three-point shooting percentage than Missouri. It it, it was hard to watch at times uh, as a Tigers fan myself. Do you have a plan right now to make sure that that is something that improves going into next year? Well, first you have to recruit it. 
Um, you have to continue to recruit it, identify it. Uh, no different than if you want shot blocking, you got to identify shot blockers. If you want high assist guys, you got to identify those guys that get high assist to turnover ratio. You have to have those guys in the recruiting uh, standpoint and be able to, uh, you know, build build a roster with those guys in mind. Yes, you have to hone those skills once they get here, but it's not going to show up overnight. Uh, by just practicing. It has to be done in their past. It has to be part of who they are as a, as a player, and, and, and the personnel has to speak for it. Uh, we'll definitely continue to get better in that area, uh, and that's something that I've identified as a need. Uh, remember, our percentage was, was low last season, and my job is to now move forward and bring some young men in this program who can possibly knock down some shots, but also create an offense that allows easier shots to be taken. Dennis Gates is our guest for just another couple of minutes here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Dennis, I am curious in the process of going through and evaluating these players. When you have, I I can't even imagine what the actual number is right now, but the number of players that are in the transfer portal, what is your process of going through and evaluating them? Do you go through and just like throw on a game and watch 10 minutes of them? And you're like, okay, I've got a pretty good idea of what this player is. What's, What's that process like for you? Well, information is power right? Information is power in the recruiting world. I've done my job years ago to know these kids when they were in high school, regardless of if I was at Florida State or Cleveland State. I've, I've done my job, watched their careers as an evaluator in high school and watched them matriculate through college, uh, their college careers. Uh, so it's not just jumping in the portal. It's already knowing and having a, a, a base of data that you know where these kids are, who they are, what they have done in years past, how they have developed as players, uh, how they've grown in strength, and obviously some have grown in height. But you have to evaluate that early on and and plant seeds and be able to bear the fruit of that labor later on, and that's what the transfer portal is about. Does the transfer portal allow somebody in your position, Dennis, who's taking over a a team that struggled last year in terms of the overall record, does it allow you to rebound more quickly because there are more players available, both transfer portal, JUCO, as you've mentioned, and then also going down into the high school ranks? Yeah, it's a percentage in that. That's a good question. Great evaluation on your behalf. Um, Yes, part of it is is that, right? You have the opportunity to – Uh, rebuild your roster with older kids, older student-athletes, and not just freshmen. I feel bad for the freshmen in high school that are getting under-evaluated and the opportunities are are, are sort of pushed to the back because the portal is more important now more than ever, okay? Uh, The other part of it is you have to understand that uh, the, the portal recruiting, it leads to you building a successful team, but you still have to cut your teeth, you still have to player develop, team build, and you have to put the pieces together. Sometimes that can be a negative. Guys that never have played together with one another. So you have to have the right pieces uh, of the puzzle. you got to have the right, right personalities in the locker room. We'll get you out of here on this, Dennis. What's your timetable on when you would like to have a staff announced? Is, is, there, is there a timeline, like after the, the championship game has been played or some of those things? What, what's the timeline look like for you? No, we're just going to be diligent. I'm, I'm going to be definitely diligent in the process of that as I continue to know our current roster, our players. They are the most important young people uh, in my mind. 
Uh, and I have to keep that personality in mind as I try to insert a staff that is suitable for their development. Sometimes as adults, we can circle names all we want, but those personalities may not fit. And that can cause a bigger problem. So for me, I want to get the right combination of guys, the right personality. And I've been taught by my mentors, Leonard Hamilton, George Ravelin, Ben Braun, all those guys. If you can be patient, be patient. You, you never want to make a mistake because that mistake can cost you in the long run. And I want to, want to make sure uh, that they want to be at Mizzou. Uh, that's as important as anything. They know the tradition. They know what, what, what's going on uh, as it relates to the city of Columbia, uh, but also uh, the entire state. So I'm making sure that I's are dotted, T's are crossed, and at some point we will move forward with that process. But right now, uh, as you notice, uh, it's, it's, it's just me and a couple other helpers around, and we're doing our thing. He's Dennis Gates, Mizzou men's basketball coach. He now won, he won the Horizon League championship each of the last two years. Alex, he was a two-time Horizon League coach of the year, and now he's the coach of our Tigers. Dennis, we appreciate the time. Thank you so much. And what I have to know is a crazy busy time for you, spending some of, of it with us today. We're getting we're looking forward to getting to know you more over the next few years. All the best to you, and good luck in the portal. Absolutely. Thanks. M-I-Z. Z-O-U. That's Dennis Gates, the Mizzou men's basketball coach, joining us here on 101 ESPN. I'm fascinated to see what he does, man. Yeah, I am too. I was looking at it yesterday. Uh, Murray State, for example. We love Dude, watching. they are disbanding their entire team. From what I understand, they have one scholarship roster or scholarship player still on the roster. And, one. and aren't they going into the Missouri Valley Conference? They Yeah. Oh. It's And they lost their coach, yeah. and he's gone now, and that's what's led to a lot of this dismantling Arkansas last year for example I looked this up whenever they made it to the Elite Eight I think it was five of their eight players that were a part of their rotation in that game were not on the roster the year prior five of the eight they just threw it together and it ended up being a team that went on a little bit of a run this is it's a different way to build a team than it was 10 15 20 years ago and if you get it right you get lightning in a bottle, and you can turn this thing around real quick. Mm-hmm. If you get it wrong, it's what we saw last year with Mizzou, where they threw that thing together on the fly, and it did not go well. They didn't have enough shooting. They didn't have a real point guard. They didn't have a center, and turns out that's not a good recipe for a men's basketball team in 2022. So I'm fascinated to see what this ultimately looks like for them. They've got to go out and get players. They got one of the top Juco centers in the country. It sounds like they're in on one of the top Juco guards in the country. That's a route Mizzou has not done much of over the last few years. And now you got to go out there in the portal and you got to find some shooters, man. This team has got to add shooting going into next year. And he said that's that's one of their needs. He knows that. He's identified it. Now you got to go find it. Yeah, that was the one thing I, I forgot to ask him, and now it pops up that I just the, the strategy from the coach. Are, are we thinking big in the middle and playing the physical brain, or are we thinking more fast-paced shooting style? And if I remember correctly, it'll Cleveland, be fast-paced. I don't know yeah. about shooting, but Cleveland State they were fast, but. They played a little bit more of a bigger style in the paint, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, look at what you've watched Florida State play over the last, what, 15 years now since Leonard Hamilton's been down there? That's his mentor. So they're going to have a lot of length. They're going to play a Havoc-style defense. They're going to get out in transition. They're going to run, and when they get in half court, there's going to be times when it doesn't look great. But if you've got the players that make it work, 
you can be pretty good playing that style of basketball. Sounds like an easy dub for Illinois again next year. <laughs> All right, enough of that. No, Coming no, up in 15 minutes. Can't even win a baseball game. Joe Patini, Cardinals bench coach from 2002 to 2011. He was on the bench for a heck of a lot of Albert Pujols' greatest moments here in St. Louis. He's going to react to the signing of Albert Pujols, what he still thinks he's got left in the tank. Joe Patini, former Cardinals bench coach, will join us coming up at 1230. But coming up next, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for something or nothing here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. All right, let's play a game of something or nothing. I love this game. Something. Yeah. Is that how we play? Let's go through some of the spring training stats for the St. Louis Cardinals. These early manner, though. I sip on my martini and smoke my cigar. That's how I feel about 95% of the things that are taking place in spring training. He does have the high-pitched voice sometimes, doesn't he? It's only when he's drinking. Can we start with one that I think is something? Uh, Sure, but I'll probably tell you it's nothing. You gave away your answer. Yeah. Yeah, we're supposed to have mystery behind it, man. Genesis Cabrera didn't get his velocity above 94 miles an hour in his last appearance. Last year, he averaged 98 miles per hour on his heater. I think it is very much something that he is struggling to ramp up in terms of the velocity this year. Genesis Cabrera's entire premise of him as a pitcher is predicated upon him being a high velocity guy. If he doesn't have that velocity, what is he? Like Jordan Hicks, I think he can ramp ramp it down because he doesn't strike out a whole lot of guys. He ramped it down to 99. Yeah. <laughs> but even if he was throwing like 95, I think you could make that work because he's he's a ground ball pitcher. That's what he is as a, as a pitcher. Hennessy's Cabrera is a strikeout guy. So if he's not going to be that, it does give me a little bit of pause. I'm not like freaking out, but is it something on a scale of like 1 to 10? Do I put it above a 5 in terms of my concern meter? Yeah, Hennessy's Cabrera's velocity is something to me that is worth paying attention to. I'm actually going to go the opposite of this. I'm going to say it's nothing. I wonder if the Cardinals have just kind of told him in terms of his control of how sometimes it can kind of go all over the place. I wonder if they're trying to ramp that down a little bit and just trying to get a little bit more movement with his pitches. For what it's worth, he has zero walks so far in the spring. So he that he has almost, been a... He did almost take a guy's knee off. I saw that one. That's fine. It's not a big deal. But the, the other thing with it too is I, I just... I wonder if Jordan Hicks has them worried about guys who just throw the heat all the time. And they're worried when it comes to longevity of the arm. And let's be honest, they they need Hennessy's Cabrera this season in that bullpen if they want to compete for a World Series. So I think it's nothing. I think the Cardinals are actually trying to get him a little bit more controlled uh, from the plate or from the uh, the pitcher's mound. See, I, I think there might be something there. I'm not very concerned about it at all. And frankly, I'll just be honest. I haven't seen him pitch that much in the one time I have because he's only appeared in three games in spring. And the one time I saw him, I wasn't paying that much close attention to his velocity. I was just looking to see how his stuff was, and his stuff seemed fine. So I, I'll say it's something because it is a little concerning to see a guy that throws 98 lose four miles per hour. Because even if you think of a drop off of your stuff, I'm thinking like two miles at the minimum. Uh, the fact that it's down four miles per hour is a little a little bit of a concern. It could be something that Alex is saying. Maybe they just told him to kind of ramp it down a little bit, and maybe that's what he's going to do this season. So I'll say it's something for now, though. I do think there is a reason to have some concern. Let's stick with a the theme of pitching right now and guys that have had a concerning start to spring training. Steven Matz is a 14.7 ERA oh. in his first two starts in the spring. He What's has thrown, score mean? He has thrown three and two-thirds innings. 
in those three and two thirds innings in which he actually you remember the rule from last year where you could just say, hey, inning over. He's done. He's going to come back out for the next inning, though. Steven Matson, his last outing had that where he left and then came back in for the next. Hold inning. Hold on. He's only pitched three and two thirds inning. And he's got a 14 ERA. Mm-hmm. He allowed nine hits, six earned runs, one of which came on a home run. He has not walked anybody and he does have five strikeouts. So that's a positive. But the nine is hits it? is certainly a bit alarming. Something or nothing, Steven Matz struggles early on in spring training. I guess midway through spring training. I'm going to say nothing because I I remember when Miles Michaelis first came over, a guy that was pitching strikes, he got roughed up in spring and ended up being fine that first year. Uh, But for Matz, I I saw him pitch his last start where he got pulled and then came right back. They were killing him softly. It reminded me a lot of that uh, Adam first start of the year for Adam Wainwright in Cincinnati, where it was like he'd go off the end of the bat and they happened to be shifted and it couldn't be an out. Not, he gave up the home run. Yeah, okay, that was hit hard. Other than that, a lot of it was just ground balls that found a hole and were able to sneak through. So I'm going to say nothing. I have no concerns about Steven Matz. Yeah, when it comes to pitching, I'm not concerned about spring training numbers, especially because you look at a shortened spring training for these guys. And we spoke with Kyle McClellan yesterday, who basically said like spring trainings, the reason it's there is for starting pitchers so that they get ramped up. Everyone else is usually good to go a couple of games into it. And if you look at at Matt's numbers from spring training past, he got roughed up in 2018 and 2019 with the Mets at spring training. And those were some of his best seasons in the regular season. So I'm saying this is nothing. I think this is just something we got to be prepared for going into the regular season. There will be games where Steven Matz does not look good. And that's a byproduct of the way that he pitches. There will be games where it is killing me softly type of stuff like that. And it's softly. not just Steven Matz. That's going to be this pitching staff as a whole. Dakota Hudson, there's going to be moments where it doesn't look good for him because guys are just they're they're stringing together singles and it's getting through the infield it will not happen all the time because this defense is so damn good but there will be moments where it doesn't look great for Matts, for woodford potentially for hudson maybe wayno all of those guys are more pitch to contact style so i'm not worried about this i think it's really nothing but it's something in terms of this is something that we should be prepared for during the regular season there will be games where it doesn't look great for this pitching staff something or nothing paul goldschmidt has been amazing so far so far in spring training six for 15 he's got a double he's hit two home runs already down in spring training something or nothing paul goldschmidt getting off to a hot start i I think this could be something i i I think Paul Goldschmidt's building off of what he did at the end of this past season where he looked like an MVP of the league. Should have been, at least in my opinion, one of the top contenders for it for the way that he performed. My only question is just what happens to this guy when you get into April and May? Because those are the the, the areas that he usually is quieter compared to the tor- the tail end of the season. But I'm going to say this is something. I, I think Paul Goldschmidt's motivated now with Ali Marmal and with the roster that they put in place. The the end of the season he had last year. I think this is something for Paul Goldschmidt. I think we could be seeing a very special season from him. I'm going to say nothing. And, and the reason I say that is because I, he's just a guy that always sits in warm weather. And, and you look at his numbers in spring training throughout his career. Look, he's not putting up numbers that he's putting up this year. But he's always had good numbers down in spring training for when he was with Arizona and when he's been here in St. Louis. He's historically struggles when it's colder outside. I mean, you look at last last year, the first month, he had 214. Grant, I think he won't be that bad in the first month of the season. I think he was dealing with that back injury, which caused him to miss the home opener. But as we move back up north here to St. Louis, I think it's going to be a high of like 
55 for opening day, I think Goldie will kind of cool off just a little bit. So I'm going to say this is nothing. This is the best spring training of his career. Like He's not just been good. He's been unbelievable so far. I think this is something. He's gotten off to some slow starts, and that's been the only issue. If he gets off to a hot start this year, it reminds me a lot of Matt Holiday, where it was always as the as the summer starts to warm up, Matt Holiday started to warm up. He always got better as the weather got warmer. If Goldie's able to carry this over into early spring, and by the way, don't forget, I know, I know it's silly. He does have a new bat, and if he's got a new bat, yeah. If that is something that actually is changing the way that he's able to hit the ball harder, and that's what he's going for here, maybe there is reason to believe that Goldie's going to have an even better year this year than what he's had over the last couple, which would be one hell of a thing for the Cardinals. That was my problem at the softball thing. I didn't have any bad bat. bat. I was using he's, an old bat. Goldie's two for two today already, by the way. Two singles in a run. It's that new bat. Hopefully Final thing break. here. Paul DeYoung, something or nothing that so far this spring, and this is before today, <clears throat> He's six for 15 with four runs, two doubles, and he has a walk and three strikeouts. So far, he has an OPS over a thousand in spring training. Something or nothing for Paul DeYoung. I think this is something. Oh, okay. I'm starting to drink the Kool-Aid of a... Oh, I'm not saying Tebow he's going to hit... us last night and he said, this guy's going to be an MVP. I'm not saying he's going to be an MVP. I'm not going to say he's going to hit 260. I think he bounces. I think I'm starting to buy into this bounce back of 2019 Paul DeYoung where he could hit that 230, 240 and have 30 home run power. And the reason I say that, and I, th- I noticed it early on in spring, and I'm glad to see the numbers start to represent as we get later on into spring, He's hitting the ball hard, and he's hitting the ball hard the other way. And that is something that you hear a lot of people say about, well, the player that has come off uh, bad springs. I can't remember who it was we were talking about last year in spring training. Probably someone Matt Carpenter. That, no, he wasn't hitting at all. Uh, uh, he hits the ball hard. But he's hitting the ball hard the other way. He's already got an RBI in today's game. I'm starting to buy in a little bit into this Paul DeYoung bounce back. I'm going to say this is something. I'm having deja vu of the advanced analytics telling me Matt Carpenter's hitting the ball hard, and he's going to get there. And then 180. Yeah, but these are actually falling, unlike carbs. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say this is nothing. I'll believe it when I see it, and I hate to do it because I, I do personally hope Paul DeYoung gets back to that form because that's where this team could seriously compete for a World Series if they have that guy hitting 30 bombs for you this season. But I, I feel like I've fallen into this in the past where he looks good in spring, and I'm thinking, oh, here we go, Paul DeYoung, and then the season starts and it doesn't work. Yeah, it, I'm saying this is nothing. I need to see it for two months before I buy into it. I, I have been... We've seen enough at this point that it is not a small sample size of Paul DeYoung struggling at the plate. If this is real, it is huge for the Cardinals. If the Cardinals get, what, first half 2019 Paul DeYoung, it completely changes the outlook for this team. I'd prefer it in the second half if that's possible. If if you get a guy that can hit 30 home runs out of your six hole, and that's where Paul DeYoung's probably going to be hitting for you this year, Man, that that lineup suddenly looks dangerous from one to six. And really, you could go, if Tommy Edmonds batting ninth, pretty close to one to nine. And and if Paul DeYoung and they're going to do this, what we talk about the sports science, getting guys off their feet every, what is it, seven days? It's when you start to lose some of the optimizing of the player or whatnot. He's going to have a better, better year than 2019 if he bounces back. And the reason I say this, the whole reason he fell apart in 2019, he just got tired. Yep. It was his first full 162 season, and he played, I think it was 159 of 162 games, and he started like 156. They just didn't have someone to back him up. You've got Sosa who can back him up. You can put him at the DH, get him off his feet for a little bit. If he's going to bounce back, it's going to be potential 30 home run power, and he's probably going to hit better than 230. He's probably going to hit closer to 240, I should be clear. I'm not expecting that. I'm just saying, if he does, we're putting all our money on it. 
Paul DeYoung changes the outlook for the 2022 Cardinals. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll dive into the junk drawer. Maybe he's number one on the most important players of probably uh, for, for the Cardinals Tanner. in 2022. Damn it, I was here early. Coming up next, though, we're talking to Joe Patini, former Cardinals bench coach from 2002 to 2011. He was here for all the great moments of Albert Pujols' early career. Let's talk to him about what it's like to see Albert back in a Cardinals uniform next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. And we're going out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to be joined by the former Cardinals bench coach from 2002 to 2011, Joe Patini, two-time World Series champion, joining us here on the show. Joe, we appreciate the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Uh, doing really well. So we, we are obviously having you on for a very specific reason. Albert Pujols is back in a Cardinals uniform. You got to see him up close in person for a decade, Joe. What's it like to hear Albert Pujols back in a Cardinals uniform? Yeah, I was so happy when uh, <clears throat> I first read that the Cardinals and Albert were talking. And then when I saw that he had signed, he was coming back for his final year. I couldn't have been happier. Uh, I was worried for the fact that I knew Albert was a free agent because of the lockout, the lost time in spring training, uh, what was going to happen with him, whether he was anyone was going to pick him up. Uh, So when the Cardinals did it, uh, I thought that was great. You know, Joe, it's 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 crazy how this works, too, because last season, I think so many Cardinals fans were looking at him when the Angels uh, basically released him and saying, man, you have to pick him up. And the timing just wasn't right for the Cardinals then. And of course, this is the year that it happens. And you look at it. I mean, was there a better timing to have Albert Pujols back with the Cardinals when you think of Yachty and Wayno's final tour for how many records that he could break this season as a Cardinal in terms of history? It really does feel like a storybook ending for him. Well, like I said, I'm glad the Cardinals picked him up. This is his final year. Uh, As great a player as he's been, uh, to be able to come back and join his two buddies with Wayno and and Yachty, uh, I'm just just hoping that this is a magical season for them, that they all do well enough, and uh, it ends with a championship. We're talking to Joe Bettini here on 101 ESPN. Joe, at what point did you realize this is not just a good player? This is a special player in Albert Pujols. Was there, whether it be a specific moment or uh, a time in his career where you're like, whoa, this is special, what we're watching right now? Well, you know what? To be honest with you, I think it took one at bat. (laughs) Uh, We signed Albert um, back when I was the uh, minor league coordinator. So Albert was a 13th round draft pick. Uh, You know, everybody had passed him up. Uh, so when the Cardinals drafted him 13th, I guess Albert thought he was a little bit more special and uh, didn't really agree to the money that was being offered. So he didn't get he didn't get signed that year to play during the regular minor league season. So at the end of the season, they got him signed and he came down to instruction league. <clears throat> so his first game in instruction league, I figured, well, he's here's a new guy. You know, he doesn't really know the other players here well enough. So the first game. We, uh, I let him DH. And his first at bat, I don't know if it was the first pitch, maybe the second pitch, but he hit it off of what was then the Montreal Clubhouse in left field down in Jupiter. And then went on to hit another one later in that game. 
So, you know, him being special was, was brought to my attention real quick. Was there one year, Joe, that that you that sticks out to you of just out, like peak Albert Pujols? Because, I mean, he had so many of them, so many MVP conversations and leading the National League or Major League Baseball in home runs. But was there one year that you remember of where Albert Pujols was just unlike any other? No, he was just so consistent. It's hard to point out one year. You know, I know the stats will say different. But uh, what really impressed me about Albert was the fact that, you know, Everybody knows how great of a hitter he is. But I remember watching games where Albert would come up in a certain situation where we needed a run driven in or another run to put the game away. And what people don't realize is his drive, his will to succeed. I remember looking at a pitcher that when he came up in that situation thinking, buddy, you got your work cut out. <laughs> Because it's just every every big at-bat that he had, he always seemed to come through. Joe, the other thing that people talk about with Albert is just his baseball intelligence. How he's just an unbelievably smart baseball player. Do you uh, do you remember a story maybe of, of a moment, an at-bat, something that uh, y- you were listening, overhearing something that Albert had to say, and you're like, God, that that is not something that you would typically expect from a 20-some-odd-year-old baseball player. No, but I can give you a certain play to show you how smart he was. Please. You know, everybody knows that he's a great hitter. Made himself uh, worked a lot with Jose Akendo, became one of the top first basemen. Uh, Playoffs against Philadelphia. Uh, Runner at second base. Now, nobody out. They're trying to advance the runner. It's a a nothing-nothing game, I believe, still. And the guy hit a chopper towards first base, which – usually advances the runner. This explains Albert Pujols to a T because his will to win, he came up barehanded the ball, threw it to third base, and got the runner out of third to prevent them from scoring a run. I don't know. I can't remember if it was the go-ahead run, but I watched that play in amazement going, you know, here you are. You're in, a, you're in the playoffs. Uh, somebody hits you a little grounder. They're just trying to advance the runner. Uh, take the out. No, he he came up barehanded the ball through through a strike to third base and and got the out and we got out of the inning. That's fantastic, Joe. The one thing I'm so curious about for this season, of course, is Albert Pujols has said it's his last ride in Major League Baseball. What kind of impact do you feel like he's going to have in that clubhouse with some of these younger players? I mean, you've seen Albert Pujols through the years coming up as a young player and getting all of the information from some of the vets, and now he's going to be that veteran. I think that's going to be tremendous for these players on the Cardinals this year. They have someone like Albert to talk to, to listen to, not only during the good times but the bad times. He's he's got a lot. To, he's got a lot for these guys, uh, you know, uh, offensively, defensively, uh, and I think that Albert is going to contribute. I think if, if if Albert's just doing this to have a swan song, that's not it. He wouldn't have done it. He's coming back because he knows that he can contribute, and he feels this team can win. Former Cardinals bench coach Joe Patini joining us for just another couple of minutes here on 101 ESPN. Joe, another guy that you coached back in in the mid-2000s that's going to be back with the Cardinals this year, Skip Schumacher. Uh, He's going to be helping out with the bench coach duties this year. How much of a value, how much of a benefit do you think it's going to be for Ollie Marmol to have Skip Schumacher in the dugout with him, especially given the relationship that Skip already has that was pre-existing with guys like Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright? How much do you think Skip's going to be a benefit to this Cardinals team? I think he's going to be really big. Uh, you know, Skip wasn't a uh, Albert Pujols or Jim Edmonds, or 
Larry Walker, uh, Edgar Renneria type. He, you know, his skills were to a certain point. And what Skip learned over the years is to be able to use the ability that he has in ways that he could help his team win. Uh, offensive, defensively, he did everything that we asked of him. We made him into a second baseman. He, you know, not, not a lot of people would try to make that adjustment to go from the outfield to play second base at the major league level, but he did it and did it very well. He's Joe Patini, former Cardinals bench coach, two-time World Series champion, coached Yachty, Wayno, Albert, all back in the early 2000s. Joe, thank you so much for hopping on with us today. We wish you all the best, and hopefully we'll talk with you again soon. All right, thank you very much. Absolutely. That's Joe Patini, former Cardinals bench coach, joining us here on 101 ESPN. It, one, one at bat. Can you imagine being so otherworldly great at something that somebody could see you do it once? And they're like, oh, boy, that is special. Like, imagine we do a segment, Alex. This would never happen given our show. But we do a segment, and the listeners are like, whoa, I've never heard anything like that before. That's what Albert Pujols was at baseball. He's one of one. Every segment on our show, 12 segments, well, 11 segments. I can't believe I've ever heard such a terrible take No, it's 11 segments because people don't like the junk drawer because, you know, we don't talk sports ever on this show. I feel that way listening to our morning and afternoon show, but not our show. I, I can listen to one segment, and I'm like, damn, I mean, let's be that was good. Let's be 100% here. You never listen to our show. That's a good point. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, is the Cardinals rotation a bigger issue for them in the regular season or once they get into the postseason? We'll talk about that coming up at the top of the hour. The junk drawer, speaking of which, is coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. There aren't very many lists that can get me really riled up. This one did it for me last night, Alex. With oh. Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Not revved up, riled up. Is there a difference? IGN put out their list of the 25 best Pixar movies over the last uh, 25 oh yeah, this years. This is going to get me heated. Do you want me to start at the bottom or the top, Alex? Should we start top 10? I'm a bottom guy. 10. Start at the bottom. Okay. No. Uh, start at the top. No, start at the bottom, man. Start at the top. I'll go, to, I'll go from 12 down. Who oh. starts at the top? Uh, I guess I guess the song is we start from the bottom. Now we're here. So okay, at yeah. number twelve, Toy Story four. Oh, that's trash in itself. I haven't seen Toy Story. It was a great movie. At number eleven, you got to remember, there's a lot of bangers from Pixar. At number Doubtful. eleven, Ratatouille, which <laughs> okay. immediately makes this list completely invalid. Ratatouille is one of the eleven best movies that's been made over the last twenty five years. Okay, much I less eleven be best Pixar films. You need to start watching some movies if you think Ratatouille is one of the best movies that has been made. Ratatouille is a great American tale. It's not even in America, bro. <laughs> True. It's an unbelievable film. It's not a top 11 movie. Are you kidding me? It might be on my Mount Rushmore. Good Lord, man. Of films. I can't believe you don't like Ratatouille this, that much. This is No, I like Ratatouille, but this is the guy who was telling us that Tick, Tick, Boom made him cry. Uh, no, I never said that. I think it, I, I think it's maybe my favorite I, movie right I now. I don't though. remember that. He said he made him cry. All right. Number 10. So far, we've gotten through two. <laughs> Toy Story 4 is number 12 on this Trash list. Ratatouille already. number 11. Number 10 is Toy Story 2. 
which I think is clearly the worst of the Toy Story yeah. franchise. Is that the one with uh, that's the it's one basically with the, a remake of Toy Story. They re, they, that's that's the one uh, where Jesse technically Woody is the one that gets taken, not Buzz. Okay, that's yeah. where the guy yeah, with the glasses. Never, yeah. The best part of Toy Stories 2 is when the old guy comes in and he like fixes up Woody, like paints his boot and colors his eyes. Yeah. It's the best part of that whole damn movie. Number nine is up. It's tremendous film. Wait a minute. Isn't Great Toy movie. Story 2 the one that Andrew Marsh comped me to when yeah. I had my goatee? Yeah. yeah. Said I looked like the bald fat guy? Correct. Yeah. Marsh is dead to me. What number, was number nine? Up. Uh, that should be higher. Okay, but go ahead. Number I eight, Finding Nemo, which I think would be on my Mount Rushmore of Pixar films over okay, the last well, 25 years. Well, here's the thing. Years. If Finding Dory is higher than Finding Nemo, this this list should be thrown out. Finding Dory, I think it was 24. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's very low. Number seven, Monsters, Inc. Great movie. That's a great movie. Number six, Coco, which Coco is a tremendous flick. I didn't like Coco that really? much. Really? Yeah, I, I wasn't Coco. a fan. My daughter loved it because of the colors and the, and the music. My Spanish teacher made us watch Coco. I kid you not, once a week. So God, that's how that's how young you are. You're, was this in high school? Yeah. Your high school teacher made you watch Coco. My senior year, he made us watch Coco. I kid you not, it was like once a week because he loved the movie and loved the music. My zoology teacher made me watch Jurassic Park. I thought you were going to say Zootopia. Uh, number five. Too old for that. Inside Out. <laughs> That, I've not seen it. That but was an awful movie. That's bad. That was an awful movie. I've heard Inside Out's not that great. It was not good. It was boring. So boring. What? Inside Out is about dealing with your emotions, and it's real. Yeah, I don't like Dude, talking about no. my emotions. Someone said no. TikTok by Kesha makes me cry. Nah, that's the wrong TikTok. It, a little different. Tick, tick, boom. Uh, Inside Out no. is a, is a I very good movie. You, Five seems a little high for Nemo me. Finding Nemo and Up and Monsters, Inc. should all be ahead of and Ratatouille. Inside Out. Nah, yeah, I'd, I'd, probably put the, I'd put Ratatouille ahead of that. Number four is Toy Story. The first one? First Toy Story, okay, the original. Right wait to hear what one and th- one through three are because Toy Story should be number, number one. Number three is going to probably be controversial. I have it on my Mount Rushmore though, so I do agree with this placement. Wally, I like Wally. I so hated I, Wally. I don't know if I'd put a top three, but I it definitely no, it should top not five. be top three. There Wally. are zero Monsters Inc. and Toy Story should be above Wally. Wally doesn't have a spoken word for like the first seven minutes, and that's when I knew it was going to be unbelievable. They, they built an entire amusement park in Disney World dedicated to Toy Story. And you're telling me Wally's better than Toy Story? They also have a ride from Ratatouille. For they also have a ride for Monsters Inc. Do they got one for Wally? No. Because it's an I awful think, movie. Uh, no, Move I, on. I think it just doesn't have the commercial appeal of the it other sh- movies, that, be, movies that we've talked about. I'm hoping we get to the level of where I can just sit in a chair and fly around. Number two, <laughs> that's Toy Story 3, which I think is too high. I agree. I, I, like, I, I Toy like Toy Story three. three. I'd have Toy, Toy Story, Story the one. original should be above Toy Story. Yeah, Toy Story one should be above Toy Story three. And number one, the best Pixar film of the last twenty five years, according to the list by IGN. I'm trying to think of what this would be, The Incredibles. Incredibles is a very good movie. Incredibles I would is not very have it at good. number one. My number one film over the last twenty five years is Ratatouille. No way. I no would way. have a Mount Rushmore of Ratatouille, Toy Story. Wally and Finding Nemo. Wally is just boring. My top three would be Toy Story, Finding Nemo, Monsters Inc. What's your fourth? What would be on your Mount Rushmore of Pixar films of the last 25 years? I would probably put Incredibles right there because I mean it's a good one. When you when you make multiple sequels to the Incredibles, you obviously had success with it. So those would be my top four. I would go, I would put Incredibles in there. I would go Toy Story for sure. 
I would I would put Coco up there. I think Coco was good in Monsters Inc. I think I'd have Finding Nemo sitting on like See, the fifth and spot. I think Toy Story three can, would be number can, five. Can I be honest? The one that I was surprised was super high or super low on the list was Cars. I thought the original Cars was good. I thought the original was good. The others, yeah. yeah. The other like the Cars second and third. Like how okay. we treat Godfather three? Like just pretend yeah. it never happened. Godfather three just, was very disappointing for fair. me. For my life, it was terrible. Have you guys seen uh, Turning Red? Was one that was on here. I've never I've seen that never, one. Never even heard of it till I yeah. saw the list. I saw. I saw. I've I think seen only, I haven't watched it yet. I think there's only three that I've never seen on this list. The Good Dinosaur. Um, Saw that one. That one was okay. Turning Red and Luca. Luca, I've never seen Luca, either. Luca was, new one, right? Luca was good. I watched that one. My nieces were... Where is... um? Where's the way, Monsters Life? University was number 22 on this list. That should be higher. That was, that was a good movie. Where's A Bug's Life? Bug's Life is 13. I'm okay with that one. I thought that was a good movie. See, I think it's, it's like slotted perfectly because I think it's okay. Toy Story yeah. 3 should be at least top five. I wouldn't put it where it was because it was number, I think it was like four, three or four. It should be top five. The Pixar movie that can make me cry as an adult. Toy Story 3 was number two. Oh, okay. Wait, what made you Toy cry? Story should, Toy, Toy Story, Story 3. 3. Toy Story 1 should probably be. They should flip them. Exactly. Because Toy Story 3 should be top five with that. I think they got Wally correct. Our text line is lighting up with me being very upset with me. They think that Wally was horrible. Wally was um, awful, dude. It was boring. Dude, I think Wally's good. But you also like you gotta get through the so. first seven minutes because they're setting the stage for what the story is. Well, everybody needs to take. But BK's once they get opinion, on the spaceship, it's about everybody needs to take BK's opinion with a grain of salt because he thinks Ratatouille is one of the best eleven movies ever made. I think Ratatouille's really good. I don't Ratatouille think is, um, hate for it. is Lilo and Lilo and Stitch wasn't Pixar, right? No, that was that Disney was just movie. Disney. Lilo and Stitch was a good movie. I like Lilo and Stitch. I I think I mentioned this earlier. Zootopia? Fantastic. I don't know if... Oh, yeah, Moana, but that's not Pixar. Moana's unbelievable. That's Disney. That's not Pixar. Moana has the best soundtrack of any movie of the last 10 years. in my opinion, Uh, is probably one of the best movies... One of the best Disney movies made. Tangled? Was that what it was called? Tangled was a long hair. Frozen, of course, should be up there as well. Frozen's a good one, too. But Moana, of all of the Lin-Manuel Miranda movies that we've seen over the last 10 years, the best soundtrack that he's made thus far is Moana. I mean, I can't. I can't comment on that. I haven't seen Moana, and I don't know if I will. You've never seen Tick, Tick, Boom. No. You've probably never seen West Side Story. Would be my assumption. Look, he's never no. seen The Godfather. I haven't. Have seen you seen the Hamilton? No, so I don't. You've wanna... never seen any of Glenn Manuel Miranda's work. When I was in high school, we we did a project on listening to all the Hamilton stuff. You'd have to like write papers on it. Never want to see Hamilton. I did not like the music. Don't want to go see it. It's really good. Very, very good. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. Wally man? Oh my God. <laughs> I didn't know that was going to be the most controversial take that I well, had today. That and Ratatouille. Coming up in about 15 minutes like or so, we're going to play a game of more likely to happen. You give us two scenarios. We will tell you which one is more likely. But coming up next, Cardinals rotation. Is it a bigger issue in the regular season or the playoffs? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Brad Thompson said something that made me think yesterday. And I love when people do this. Alex makes me think about hey, do I agree with that? I don't know. But Brad Thompson yesterday said that the Cardinals can get away with this rotation early in the season. But when you get to the playoffs, 
Is that right, the right way to go about it? Here's what BT had to say yesterday on the fast lane. So, yes, I believe that you can get away with it, but I do get a little worried come October. I would love to have an ace. A couple of aces. You have Adam Wainwright. Adam Wainwright starting game one for you, no question. You hope you have Jack Flaherty healthy for game two when you're getting into a postseason. I need to know, though. Like, I need to know that I'm covered there because starting pitching and defense, the defense is going to play big in October, are the two most important things. So let's start here. I would love to have two aces in the playoffs. I, I totally am in agreement with that. And this team, they can't win at the highest of levels if they don't have Jack Flaherty as an ace. That being said, I'm not sure I agree with the second portion of that, actually. I think that the Cardinals might have more issues getting through the regular season because of their staff than winning in the playoffs because of their staff. And here's why. What we've seen basically since 2015 when the Royals went to the World Series is that they became a team that showed others you can win with bullpen in the playoffs. You look at that Braves rotation last year, for example. It wasn't lights out. They won because their bullpen shortened the games for them. And other teams have done the same thing. That's kind of become the new formula, right? You only need your starter in the playoffs. It's one of the reasons why we were confident about the Cardinals last year. You only need your starters to go four innings or so, maybe get you into the fifth, especially with the TH now. And if you get through that, giving up two, maybe three earned runs, you feel pretty good about your opportunity to be able to win into the playoffs. So, Alex, for me... I'm actually more worried about the regular season because of how many innings they're going to have to eat with that rotation. And frankly, the lack of innings that I'm uh, confident in right now that that rotation can eat. I feel better about their rotation in the playoffs than I do the regular season right now. I'm worried about the regular season, but I'm kind of with BT on this one when it comes to the playoffs. And I understand what the Braves did, but I think that was kind of an anomaly when it comes to it because past World Series champions, you look at the way that the Dodgers won it, you look at the way that the Houston Astros won it. Those guys those guys had the aces. They had the significant guys that can start for you. And I just, I'm worried about the regular season in terms of innings pitched because... I don't know if you do have enough guys that can eat innings for you. When you look at uh, without Jack Flaherty, you know Wayno's going to eat pitches, and hopefully Steven Matz can get there. Dakota Hudson might be on an innings limit, and you just don't know with Miles Michaelis right now, nor do you know with that fifth guy in your rotation. So I'd be more concerned about the regular season, but I am with BT. BT. I think when it comes to postseason, you've got to have two significant guys for you because I just don't think you can get away with it if you only have Adam Wainwright. Yeah, and I think I have concerns about how they're going to fill these innings in the regular season as well. I said yesterday, you know, I I don't know if we're going to see a 15-game winner for the Cardinals this year. I just think there's going to be a limited opportunity. Starters aren't going to be going deep, especially early on in the year. And I just don't know about the health of some of these guys like a Miles Michaelis, Dakota Hudson, so on and so forth, and Jack Flaherty coming back. I, I think you need those. I have concerns about the innings being eaten, but I do think you need an ace, two aces in the postseason. I think you could use... Guys like that, I get it. It's becoming more of a bullpen game in the postseason. And look, that's why I had faith in the Cardinals last season when I was watching them. I, we had six guys in the circle of trust by the time the season came to an end. I thought they could shorten games and get to it. But I think you, I think it's better off if you have two aces that you can go to that can give you hopefully six innings if you can possibly get that from a guy. Jack Flaherty's a guy that can do that for you. Adam Wainwright, I think he can do it for you still. I'll be interested to see what he looks like when the season starts because he's getting up there in age. But other than that, then who else is there for you? So it comes down to Flaherty's health. This rotation is going to have the question marks in the regular season. I think they can get it done. I think they're going to be able to piece it together. I think you need those two workhorses in the postseason that you can rely on to get you five solid innings and not give up any runs before you turn to your bullpen. Yeah, and, and to be fair, like in an ideal world, 
the Cardinals have Jack Flaherty available to them, and he's not out the entire season. And in that scenario, you have two guys that can at least pitch up to the level of being an ace with him and Wayno. So, like, this very well may not even be an issue for them. They they might just have these guys already available on the team. But if we, fingers crossed, knock on wood, this is it doesn't end up being the case. If Jack Flaherty misses the entire 2022 season, or if one of those two guys just isn't available in the postseason, so now you're going in with one ace-level starter, and then a bunch of other solid starters. I would rather have that scenario than go into the playoffs with a bullpen that I don't trust. Like, if you're telling me, hey, BK, you've got to have one of these two scenarios. A, you've got an average starting rotation, but a pretty darn good bullpen. Maybe not locked down the way that we've seen some of these teams, but pretty darn good, like top five in baseball. Or B, You've got a pretty darn good starting rotation in your top two. Like you've got two guys that are ace level, but a bullpen that's pretty average. I would rather have the lockdown bullpen in today's game with the way that the game is managed in the playoffs. Now, the regular season, I think it's different. The regular season, I would rather have the great starting pitching, but it's just that's how much the game changes once you get to the playoffs, because once you get to the playoffs, you could be so aggressive. You can take your pitcher out. You can take your starter out after four innings and it doesn't kill you. Because you're going to go out there and you're going to get your best arms coming out of the bullpen. You're not going to see the underbelly of another team's uh, bullpen. That's why I would rather lean on my bullpen once we get into the playoffs. Yeah, but if I had those two options, I think I would take the other one. Because if I have a a bullpen that I have to rely on because my rotation's average, my bullpen might be spent by the time I absolutely need them in the World Series. Because I'm using them too much. Like, I think back to the Cleveland Indians run where, I mean, they were using Andrew Miller every single game because they just needed to lock things down. They also damn near won the World Series, man. I get like, it. They, they, they were right there and they they almost won the World but, uh, Series. Despite opinion, not having, like, ace-level stuff. But in my opinion, I think they lost that World Series because they, they utilized their guys way too much to get to that point. So That's a fair point. I would rather have the lockdown arms as my rotation and a good bullpen, maybe not a great bullpen, but I know I'm not going to have to overuse those guys in the bullpen because two out of the three guys that are going to be starting in, in playoffs are going to be able to lock things down. Kind of like what the Washington Nationals did with Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin. Yeah, and you know, I I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think the American League, if I'm not mistaken, probably, I think you saw more starters go a little bit deeper than he did the National League because of the pitcher last year in the postseason. So I think the game might shift a little bit more towards the starting pitching. Not a I'm lot. I'm not sure that that's true, actually. I, I, think, we saw, I think we saw more longer out, because I can remember at least a National Astros pitcher, uh, what's his name? Al- I think he pitched against the Cardinals yesterday. Alvarez, is that his name? Had a really long outing, I think six, seven innings for the Astros. There are tight with the DH, you can have a starter go longer, and that's why I would want more of a workhorse starter like a Max Scherzer, someone like that, that can lock down a team compared to going to a bullpen for multiple matchups. Look, if you have a lot, you can't win in the postseason without a great bullpen. Like, if you only have the average or th- only three guys you trust. If the Cardinals went into the postseason last year and only could trust Reyes, Cabrera, and uh, who's the other one that was in our circle? Oh, Gallegos. They weren't going to win isn't at that all how, in the postseason. Isn't that how the Washington Nationals won it, though? I mean, how many guys did you— They still had a very good bullpen. Yeah, but how many guys did you have faith in? I mean, I know you had Sean Doolittle, um, and there was I one mean, other— they were the, if you're looking for a team in recent years— that has won a World Series based on starting pitching, it is the Nationals. That's that's the one you would point to. But I can also point to multiple teams that I would say won the World Series over the last seven years 
because of their bullpen. The Royals won the World Series because they had an outstanding bullpen. The Braves last year won the World Series because of their pin, not because of their starting pitching. Their starting pitching was in shambles. Did they win because of their pin or did they win because of their offense, though? Both. Because I I feel like the Braves won it because they had just, I mean, they had just nonstop options that could come up and continue to create more offense. I I would point to the Braves' bullpen, I think, because by the time you got into the World Series, I mean, that bullpen, they had just come off a series in which I think they shut down the Dodgers, if I'm not mistaken. They, I mean, they were unbelievable. That bullpen was unbelievable in the postseason for them. So they, I would credit theirs towards the bullpen. But I, I do still think you need someone that you can turn to as a workhorse in the rotation because I agree with Alex. At some point, the bullpen's going to start to wear down in the postseason. And I get it. It's not every single day that you're playing. But if you look at – I know the Cubs beat the Indians in that World Series – they ended up going to extra innings in Game 7 because Chapman couldn't get the job done because mm-hmm. he was just gassed, and everybody knew it, everybody could see it, and that's part of the reason where I think you need someone that can be a starter that can give you six, seven solid innings for you in one, just one start. I'm just saying one start. I'm not saying you need that every because start. Because you use, what, four guys in a playoff? Like in a seven-game series, you're probably going to use four guys in your rotation, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. And you might even narrow that down to three because sometimes you see guys double it up when you get that aces, ace going. So uh, that's at least... For me, that's that's how I feel with it. For what it's worth, the the games the Braves won last year in the World Series, the Astros scored two runs, they scored zero runs, they scored two runs, and they scored zero runs. So did their offense also put up six, two, three, and then seven? Yeah, but I, their, their bullpen completely locked those games down. So I would put more emphasis on their bullpen as being the reason why they won that World Series last year, but... I mean, it, credit goes all around, right? When we of talk course. about the 2011 yeah, World you're Series. You're not winning with all three areas. Here in St. Louis, there's a million different things that you have to point to to be able to ultimately get to that place. Randy said something I also wanted to react to really quickly before we get to more likely to happen on the other side. He was talking about his expectations for the Cardinals this year. I was surprised by this level of expectation from Randy. My reality is I expect them to be, and I expected them last year, to be maybe an 84-85 win team. And with the expanded playoffs, maybe they sneak in. I don't expect an awful lot from them. So I'm glad that we're going to have this opportunity because St. Louis, for the most part, and I know that there are a lot of people that will text in and say, no, it's all about winning. It's all about winning a World Series. But St. Louis loves their guys, I think, more than any other market. And we get to celebrate three of our guys this year. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to celebrate our guys. Do you view the Cardinals that way this year? As an 84-win team? Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I'm i with him. on. on I, I still don't view this team as a World Series favorite. But I... I I view this team as an 89-win team. I view this team as possibly getting to 90 wins. This, I mean, I just don't know how you could get to 84 wins when the NL Central is this bad. Especially if that's your expectation. If your expectation right now for the Cardinals is go is 84 wins, and I guess this is just everybody could view the team differently, right? I'm sure there's a lot of people that are oh, right yeah. in line with that. Uh, for me, though, if this team wins 84 games, it's a drastic failure. Oh, yeah. Like your stated mission going into the offseason – was to win this year for Yachty, Wayno, and now for Albert. When they signed Albert, they didn't say we're doing this for sentimental reasons. They said we think he can be a piece that helps us win a championship. Now, of course they are, right? That That's the message that every team would put out there. If they end up winning 84 games and Albert's just out there as more of a mascot than he is, a guy that's actually going to help them win, that's a failure. 
for the St. Louis oh, Cardinals yeah. in 2022 in my mind. Especially after your manager has been saying World Series or bust, yeah. World Series or bust. Like if you're an 84 win team, there are a lot. Like it doesn't even matter if you have the nostalgia of Albert Pujols, Yadier Molina, Adam Wainwright. Like that's that's a bad season for the Cardinals. Also, I'm with him in that St. Louis loves their guys. I totally agree with that. They love them when they're playing well, though. Matt Carpenter was not a fan favorite at the end. Adam Wainwright, when he was pitching poorly, guys, I didn't see the same kind of reverence for Waino whenever he was struggling for a couple of years as I do now. If Albert Pujols goes out there and he hits this year the way that Paul DeYoung has the last couple of years, people are going to be calling for Corey Dickerson and for Lars Nupar and Nolan Gorman to get opportunities as your designated hitter. They're going to want Juan Yepes to get his chance as your DH. So all of that's fine and well until they start losing and until those guys start playing poorly, they won't be celebrated at that point. They will be criticized for the way that they're performing at the plate. Yeah, and I think the floor, if you want to look at a floor, would probably be 84 wins, and that's where the disappointment would be. I think the ceiling for this team is probably around 88 to 90 wins. They, I mean, they should be competitive for the NL Central. I mean, you look at your ceiling? In, yeah, 84. Eight to ninety wins, I think, is the ceiling. For oh, yeah. me. In terms of the regular season record, I think this team's ceiling in the postseason is getting to the NLCS. I think they could do that. I don't see them getting to the World Series. Does it, if I told you right now, Paul DeYoung's going to have a borderline All Star season, what's that ceiling look like for the team? A borderline, like he he could make an All Star game. Oh. Like that that that's the kind of production that he's going to post. So he's going to be my a concern is two sixty hitter with thirty home runs. I think the year. offense is going to be fine. My concern is the pitching. Like and I don't think I don't think Paul DeYoung having a great season changes much on that. Like my concern is the fact that I don't know who's your rotation with the uncertainty of Jack Flaherty, Dakota Hudson, and the fifth guy. And I just don't look at the Cardinals and say they're great at one area. Uh, defense. Deep I think defense. your offense can be great oh, if yeah, Paul yeah. DeYoung is great this I, year. I agree with that, but I don't know if your offense can can win games when your rotation is in in shambles at least at the start yeah and maybe maybe the offense will be great if you have that bounce back from de young but i i just don't know what kind of level of production i'm getting from dh is carlson going to take the next step what's everything look like kind of sure. below those guys is bader going to be doing what he did last year o'neill's kind of struggled early on in spring is he going to be the same guy himself so i think there's still some question marks in there sure if de young has a bounce back and everybody else holds to form then yeah the offense could be great but i just don't see the offense being great this season i say the cardinals are good at offense they're going to be have a decent pitching staff and the bullpen looks like it's going to be good i don't know if they're great at anything that's why i say they're going to battle with milwaukee well defense okay i said defense but i think they're going to battle with milwaukee for the central 88 90 to 91 wins would probably be that ceiling for me and a chance to get to the nlcs last year and the division was better a year ago i i think that they're i think their ceiling is closer to 95 wins Uh, i I don't think they're going to get there necessarily, but we're talking about ceiling. Like Best case scenario, Paul DeYoung's good this year. And if Paul DeYoung is good this year and other stuff just holds to form and the rotation doesn't go into shambles, I think this team could absolutely win 95 games last year. The Brewers often stunk all of last year, but they were great in one area. For them, it was the starting staff, and that was enough for them to ultimately get to 95 wins and uh, clearly had lapped the field by the end of the season and were resting guys at the end of the year in their rotation to just get ready for the playoffs. I think the Cardinals could get there, but I think the floor is like 85-ish wins, and I think the ceiling's closer to 95. So that's kind of the range that I view them. But uh, I'm obviously higher on the team than a lot of people are right now. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, we're talking to Chris Kerber. Coming up next, 65780 is the Air Cover Service X line for more likely to happen here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What 
what's more likely to happen, they'll figure it out. BK and Ferrario's most likely to happen. Off was I yesterday? Well, you were like, like three seconds delayed. Seconds. I was you wor- started now. I was worried about that when I was listening. Six five seven eight zero is the air comfort service X line for more likely to happen. Uh, more likely to happen. Albert Pujols starts at least, or excuse me, hits at least seven hundred home runs in a Cardinals uniform, or. Jack Flaherty gets to 25 starts this year. Flaherty gets 25 starts. Pujols hits 700 home runs. I'm going to say it's more likely with Pujols because if Flaherty's going to miss at least the first month of the season, is it possible for him to get to 25 starts? He could. Because I'm like, but 30 he'd have starts, to be healthy like the entire rest say, of the year. 30 starts is ideal for a full season. 33. 30, yeah. 30, so you're normal. So you take out a month. You're taking out at least, what is that, five starts? Ish. Five, six yeah. starts? And then, yeah, you got to go healthy the rest of the way. And, if and you're not already, skip any starts because you're getting ramped up. Like and if you're already stuff. dealing with this, yeah, it's more likely that Pujols hits 700. Yeah, I think it's more likely Pujols hits 700. I mean, he sounds like he's going to get more bats than we originally thought. And then, like you mentioned, the Jack Flaherty injury. I, I don't remember. We had the injury expert on. He said it could be a month. It could be two months. It could be three months. You just don't know depending on how well he reacts to the, what was it, the PRP injection mm. that he got. So I, I'll i be stunned if Jack Flaherty makes 25 starts. And that's not saying I think he's going to be hurt all year. I'm just saying kind of what BK just laid out. The timetable of he's going to have to ramp up. He's going to get starched. You're probably going to skip him to be a little bit cautious with him and have him fully healthy for the postseason. It's going to be difficult for him to get to 25. Yeah, I think so too. I, I would be closer to 20 than 25. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably 15 be to 20, yeah. My realistic expectation for him. 65780 is the air comfort service text line from the 314. Guys, more likely to happen. Corey Dickerson starts DH on opening day. Or Albert Pujols starts the majority of the Cardinals games this season at DH. I'm going to say more likely Pujols starts the majority of the games. I I don't see any scenario that Corey Dickerson starts at DH unless there's an injury to Albert before the season starts. Home opener, Bush Stadium, final ride. uh, Like... And it's very likely Jose Quintana starting for the Pittsburgh Pirates. I just don't see any scenario where Corey Dickerson starts opening day as a DH. So I'm going to say Pujols is more likely. Yeah, I think it's more likely it's uh, Pujols gets the majority of the starts at DH. I just, I'm kind of with Alex. I can't see a scenario, even if it's a right-handed yeah. pitcher on the mound, Agreed. in which you don't start Albert Pujols at DH on his final home opener here in St. Louis. There would probably be a riot if he's not in the starting lineup. So I, I would say it's more likely Pools gets the majority of starts rather than Dickerson gets the start at DH. We can sweep it. We all agree on this one. 65780 is the air cover service tax line from the 314. More likely to win the title this year, the Blues in the NHL playoffs or the Cardinals with the World Series? Jeez. Oh, Backing me in a corner here. Pessimistic Pete's over here who just said that the Cardinals are going to win 85 games next year with a maximum of 90. I said 89 is a likely scenario. Who are we rebuilding? I thought you said we're going to rebuild the Cardinals. The Cardinals? No, because I'd say they're more likely. Uh, I think the Blues Cup year is 2023. I think with the likelihood of Matthew Kachuk being traded with the assets that the Blues are going to have in this offseason on top of maybe some cap space. I, I think 20, as much as I hate to see it because anything can happen in the playoffs and I think the Blues could get past the first round if they match up against Minnesota. I think 
Doug Armstrong and his staff are looking at 2023 as the the next wide open window for a team run in a Stanley Cup chase. And I think the Cardinals, I think it is a open field for the Cardinals to make a run, especially if they make moves at the trade deadline. So I'll say it's the Cardinals. I think I'm going to go Cardinals as well, even though I think their ceiling's the NLCS. I I have trouble seeing the Blues getting past the first round right now, the way they're backpedaling into the playoffs. Now who's pessimistic, Pete? Well, and, and I just view them. I, I said that when it came to the trade deadline, they had to make a move if they are going to be. They made even, a move. They got Nick Letty. Not that kind of move. He's looked great. I, I thought they were going to have to make a significant move to get closer to the Calgary and Colorado. They didn't do it. So I think it's more likely the Cardinals can get in. They can kind of get the luck that the Braves had where a team has really beat up. The Cardinals can take advantage of that going around and get to the world series so going cardinals here um i think that the blues i'm with alex on this 2023 is probably their year i think they are going through a bit of a transition cycle right now i think the last two to three years they didn't state it publicly but when you look at what they've done they're trying to transition the core from what it was during the cup year to what it is now and what it's going to be so I think it's much more likely for the Cardinals. They, meanwhile, are in a very much win-now mode. No reason not to go for it with Yachty, Wayno, and now Albert in their final year here in St. Louis. And the Cardinals are the ones that are making that known more than the players are even right now. So I would go Cardinals much more likely to be aggressive, especially at the trade deadline. I know that has not been what John Mosaloc has done, what, for a decade now? If ever there was a time to do it, it's going to be this year. Be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. Next one up for more likely to happen. More likely to spend the rest of their career with their current team. Lamar Jackson or Kyler Murray? Did you guys see the quotes yesterday from the Ravens owner? No. Very interesting is what it was. Really? I'll read this for you. Steve Biscotti, the owner of the Ravens, doesn't foresee Baltimore signing Lamar Jackson to a contract extension before the start of the season, quote, unless he has a change of heart and calls our general manager. Eric can't keep calling him and say, hey, Lamar, we really need to get you in here and get this thing done. That's not a general manager's job. Kirk Cousins did it that way. What if Lamar says that? I'll play the fifth year. I'll play on the franchise tag. I'll play on another one, and then you can sign me. And that gives me three years to win the Super Bowl so you can make me a $60 million quarterback because that's where we're going to be four years from now. That might be the case, but I don't talk to Lamar. That's not my role. I don't know the answer. Yikes. Honestly, I don't even know in this one because both teams are like days of our lives NFL version. You got Lamar Jackson now who's not calling the general manager. You got Kyler Murray who's posting or taking pictures off of Instagram. I, I Tebow, maybe you got a better gauge for this. I think it's it's more likely who's going to be on the team long term or not. Which what was it? How is it? Will be on their team for the rest okay. of their careers. I, I think it's Lamar Jackson because Baltimore has built that system around Lamar Jackson, and if he were to go elsewhere, let's say they do this, and I get it, it's, it looks bad the way that that was framed, but you know, money solves everything. Uh, but if you take Lamar and were to move him somewhere else, a team has to really completely rebuild their whole system. It has to become more of what Baltimore's is. You could pluck Kyler Murray off of the Cardinals and go throw him into Seattle and he could be okay. He would be able to run an offense because he's not dependent on having a very much heavy run game like Lamar Jackson is where he runs the ball a lot. Kyler can run, but not, not the way that Lamar does. I'd say it's more likely Lamar Jackson stays in Baltimore. They figure a way to work this out because they're really the only system that I see Lamar really working in right now. I'm going Kyler because I think they'll eventually get that deal done. 
Guys, I think it's actually smart what Baltimore is doing right now. I don't think they should sign Lamar Jackson long term. Not yet. You've still got the fifth year option. Then you've got two years that you can use of team control with the franchise tag. And is that going to be expensive? Of course it is. And it's going to be a crazy amount of money at that point if you want to resign him. But that's three more years of team control that they have over Lamar Jackson. I don't know what he's going to look like at age 28. He already showed this year signs of some real struggles of staying healthy through a 17 game regular season. It's not going to get easier as he gets older. So I like Lamar. I think if you're the Ravens, you're thrilled to have him as your starting quarterback because you know, going into every year, we've got a franchise guy, but am I giving him the Josh Allen deal? Am I giving him anything approaching what Deshaun Watson just got from Cleveland? Hell no, absolutely not. So I'm waiting. I'm franchising him a couple of times and we'll see where we're at at that point. And if he ends up still being excellent, you'll be happy to pay whatever it takes to be able to keep him long term then. So right now, I think they're playing this the right way. I wouldn't sign him long term. I do think the Cardinals will eventually sign him to a long term sign. Cardinals will sign Kyler to a long term. Yeah, I'm with you on that one because I, I wonder if the Ravens general manager lowballed Lamar because of the last couple of seasons and he's saying, no, I'm going to I'm going to get paid. Whereas Kyler Murray, Kyler Murray is just going to take what the Cardinals offer him despite all of the soap operas that took place. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're getting to the BK and Ferrario rewind. But next, Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Time now for Curbside with the voice of the blues, Chris Kerber. Brought to you by Sliman Brothers. Offering everyday low prices, expert advice, and free delivery. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to preview tonight's game for the Blues versus the Canucks once again with the voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber here on 101 ESPN. Curbs, we appreciate the time as always, man. I was very interested when I heard your post game show. You guys caught up with Marco Scandella, and he said after the last game that the Blues really wanted that one against Vancouver because they really dislike the Canucks. No, they hated the Canucks. What am I missing here, Curbs? When did this become a rivalry? Well, you, you know what? Actually, Blues and Canucks has been a pretty good rivalry over the years. You go back to the early 2000s and, you know, 2003 especially when the Blues, I think, had a, maybe one of their best chances to win a cup and had a great team. And Vancouver came back from a score of 3-1. to one. Then you had you had so many, you know, good opportunities and good years when the Blues were playing well and you'd come in here and you'd play the Sedin Twins and all and, uh, you know, go back to those early days, and I think it was Todd Bertuzzi that was the one that checked Al McKinnis and, and, and hurt his shoulder. Did the same thing, I think, to Barrett Jackman. Jackman had some huge, you know, games against that uh, that that line that they had here of Bertuzzi and Morrison and Naslin. I mean, there, there's always been some great games, but most recently, obviously, it was the Canucks that knocked the Blues out of the playoffs up in the bubble. Some guys were there. Some guys remember it. And whether it's that or something else, Brandon, I'll tell you what. Whatever you got to do to fire yourself up and give yourself the motivation to play a little angry, to play a little edgy, that'll work. And I, I was glad to hear him say that. Curbs, uh, I know you dislike the Blackhawks, but but are there any teams that Chris Kerber hates? Yeah, the Blackhawks. Okay, other than the Blackhawks, I know other you the take Blackhawks. their I know you take their free beach towels that they gave and used it to wipe your feet. Do you still hate the Red Wings? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't even take those free beach towels. Oh, that's to, right. To Joey used it as rags. Yeah, 
Yeah, Joe, Joey, Joey brought those home to his kids, and I hope he used it as a diaper. But listen, uh, no, I think, uh, well, obviously always the Detroit Red Wings, you know, okay. were, were, you know, our, our classic ones. Uh, Nashville, I think, has grown into a terrific rivalry, you know, for the St. Louis Blues. Those, those are good ones to get fired up at. Do you view uh, Colorado as a rivalry, Curbs? Uh, I, you know what? I don't feel it as much yet. I don't know about you guys. I don't, I don't feel Colorado's in there. Like, there's never really been anything that's happened that really drives some nastiness yet. Kadri, maybe, maybe it gets there. Like, I think San Jose is actually, especially from a playoff standpoint, one of the Blues' best rivals. I think you see some great games uh, when, when San Jose and St. Louis get together. Yeah, I'd agree with that one. So, Curbs, uh, how important is it for these guys, the Blues, to get back on the right track on the road? I think they have two road wins in their last six road appearances, especially when you're headed down this stretch, fighting for a number two seed in the in the uh, Central, possibly a three seed or a wild card. How important is it to get back on the right track with the road games? Well, I, I think it's important, that w- whether it be road or home, Alex, I, I think it's important that you just continue and you take the positives you had from the, the last couple of games when you've had them and you build on them. Very solid first period, good third period, maybe not a great second period, and you build on that. And I think that's going to come down again to not just the preparation on the ice, but the mental preparation. What are guys What are guys ready for tonight? Uh, Bruce Boudreaux was not happy with the defensive zone coverage of his team after the last game. He talked about it actually with us just a few minutes ago. Um, you know, he was uh, all over his team for letting guys go. Uh, the Connor Garland turnover that led to the David Perron goal. You know, Connor Garland just talked about that and how it you know cost his team a game. So you put put all that together, and you know they're going to be a much more gritty and much more defensive tight team, and you've got to be prepared for that. So I, I think that what I look for is more: are they building on some of the positives that? Uh, have come out of the last game and do you grow on that because I do think all in all you start to see some of that team game coming around Chris Kerber the voice of the blue listen guys it takes a while really sorry Brandon the the reality of it is is when you have bad habits creep into your game much like if you have bad habits creep into your life it, it it takes you a little while to kind of work through those and very rarely does it just turn around on a dime and and I think the success that the Blues have had against Vancouver gives them a chance to play two really good games together here Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues joining us here on one one ESPN. You can follow him on Twitter at Chris Kerber. That's something that Alex said about the blues yesterday as well. Kerb. So you guys are on the same page there. I, I did want to ask you, cause the other night, uh, the last game at home against Vancouver was a really cool moment for Vladimir Tarasenko 500th point in his career. After the game, he was able to get the ovation from the fans and you could tell he was really soaking it in, in that post game interview that he did uh, with Panger. I, I found it interesting after that game. And then again, yesterday on the fast lane, uh, Craig Berube talked about Tarasenko. He said, Hey, you know, since I've been here, he's become a much more well-rounded player as well. Curbs, what have you seen? You've seen the start to the end now of Vladimir Tarasenko's career. What have you seen from that development and how much has he changed in terms of the all around game from what you remember early on in his career here in St. Louis? Well, I think the, those, as, as they as they learn and as they grow, they realize that you just can't be a one-dimensional player, you know. And I think that you, one of the signs when Vladimir is on his game like he was that last game, did you see how engaged he was? Look, look, when he starts skating, he can be as powerful a skater as this team has. He can throw his body around. We saw that a little bit. Obviously, you saw the shots on goal and the number. And there's a reason that he was plus three in that game versus minus seven over the previous two. 
You know, and that's that's just an overall engagement level. And to play Craig Berube style of hockey, you've got to be able to back check as hard as you go forward and play, you know, offensively. And when you do that, you know, frankly, we saw that develop with Ken Hitchcock and, and the way he kind of turned things with David Backus and TJ Yoshi and Berglund and Vladimir and, you know, Perron for a little while there. You play that style of hockey, it does lead to offense. And, and Vladimir realizes that. Look, I'm, I'm happy for the guy. He came in with question marks. He came in with a cloud. Yes, some of it self inflicted, you know, clearly with the trade we could request and all that. But having said that, you know, he, he's put his head down. He's played well. He's delivered for this team offensively, and he's given a chance to win some games and, and, and geared them towards the playoffs. And I, I think you, you've got to be pretty happy with his overall season. Curbs, maybe you can help clear up some of this confusion for me because I had this on postgame Monday night. I've heard a couple of different uh, Blues fans uh, mention this to me on social media. Uh, has Colton Pareko been playing bad in this last stretch, because I think he's in terms of plus minus, he's been one of the best defensemen in the national hockey league curbs. I said the other day, it's the best I've seen him play in two years. Guys. I I don't know where, I don't know where this criticism of Colton Pareko's play is coming from. I mean, to be honest with you, no, I think he's played very solidly. I think he's played very well. Um, I, I look at his overall season coming off of what he had to do last year and battled with that injury that he dealt with. I think he's been fine. Look, have there been mistakes? Yeah, but those mistakes to me are not just one individual guy. There's there's been mistakes from a team standpoint, and that's you know that you can only do so much as one guy. I I may be wrong. I'm gonna check with Davey Alexander on this, but I know I know there was like a lot. Like I know it was broken down how he you know he handled that goal by Jarvis the other night. I think the goaltender has to have that. I saw that same play by Colton Pareko in that last game two or three more times, and the guy steered behind the. The, the the net and there was no threat so I, I think Colton Pareko's been fine guys when you are second overall in the league at what almost 22 just under 22 minutes of even strength ice time a game and you're playing against the other team's top teams and you did that and you did that successfully while the team is shorthanded while there's only 17 skaters while guys are out with COVID and while you're skating and, and bringing up along a essentially a rookie a guy in his second year with Nico Mikola I think Colton Pareko's been fine. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not room for improvement. That doesn't mean that there's not room for consistency. When he skates with that puck, he's as dangerous as anybody because they can't catch him. And that, to me, tells me he's on his game when he gets that puck and just skates it out of trouble. But I, I think he's had a very solid season um, and, 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 has, and has been fine. And, and is there another level? Oh, yeah, there's another level for every single person on this team, in my opinion. And you're going to have to start seeing more from everybody. He's Chris Kerber. You'll hear him on the call tonight. It's a late one. Blues versus Canucks. We've got pregame with Alex starting at 8. We've got the puck drop with Curbs and Joey at 9 o'clock right here on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN. Curbs, talk with you again next week, man. Thanks so much for the time today. You got it, guys. Have an awesome weekend. Same to you. That's Chris Kerber, voice of the Blues here on 101 ESPN. We'll hit the rewind next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. If you missed anything from
from today's show. Be sure to check out the podcast page. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, 101ESPN.com. The free 101 ESPN app is where you find it. We were able to catch up with Dennis Gates, the new Mizzou basketball coach. That'll be available over there. Former Cardinals bench coach Joe Patini also joined the show. And, of course, Chris Kerber, as he joins us each and every Wednesday, joined us today as well. Finishing things up today with the BK and Ferrario Rewind, let's get to Paul DeYoung, who's having one hell of a spring, guys. Today, he once again had a tremendous game, a double, a home run. He now has three doubles this spring, a home run, six RBI. He only has three strikeouts and 17 at-bats. He's eight for 17 so far this spring. Are you guys believing into the, buying into this? Like, If this is real, what does that mean for the Cardinals? Man, if this is real, this is going to take an offense that we were all very high on to the next level. And I think it could open up the potential for more wins for the season if Paul DeYoung gets back to this. I still just want to see it in the regular season because I feel like we've been here before with this, but there's no denying what he's doing in spring training right now. I mean, the fact that I think they have 10 runs scored, at least I saw that, and five of those runs have come from Paul DeYoung. This is a guy who at least seems very confident going into the regular season. Yeah, I'm starting to buy into it a little bit. I think he'll get back to 2019 form, probably more of the 230 potential for 30 home runs, not what he did. I think in the first half of that year, he hit like 250, if I'm not mistaken, because I was looking his numbers up the other day. But yeah, I'm starting to buy into it. He's hitting the ball hard. He's hitting it the other way. Today was another great day, as you mentioned. He had the home run. So I'm starting to buy into it a little bit. And if he gets back on track, you're talking about a lineup that could be really solid one through six, as long as your DH guys are good. And and you're going to have Harrison Bader, Tommy Edmond, and Yadier Molina at the bottom of that lineup, which will be very good. Somebody on the text line said, Paul DeYoung always starts hot and then he slows down. Just not true. Last year, he did start pretty slow. 200 batting average in spring training. The year before that, right before spring got shut down, he was having a great spring training. And then, of course, things shut down for like four months. The year before that, 200 batting average in spring training with a 690 OPS. The year before that, he was really good. It's been like four years since we've seen a real spring training that Paul DeYoung was excellent in. So not true there. I wonder if he could be the Ivan Barbashev for the Cardinals. Barbie was the guy that extended the lineup for the Blues. He was the one that came out of nowhere. It's like, oh, wow, they can have a 20 to 25 goal score in Barbie. Paul DeYoung could be that guy for the Cardinals, where if he's batting sixth for you and he's hitting 25 to 30 home runs, suddenly it completely changes my expectations for the lineup going into the year. I'm not in yet. I need to see it in the regular season before I believe it. But if that is what he's going to be, if what we're seeing in the spring will continue into the regular season, who baby, it's going to completely change the just, way that we view this offense. Just we're talking about that lineup. Yachty goes yard with a two run oh, shot. I thought, I thought like DeYoung struck out the BKO hit again. We'll be Hopefully back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Fast lane <laughs> coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a 3-in-1 formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. It keeps you seeing safely all year long. Pick up some at Walmart today. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash.